Hello and welcome to Final Games, a podcast about the games that inspired us. I'm your host, Liam Edwards, and thank you for joining me for the 53rd episode of the show. And for once again coming along to wave just like Link does to his grandmother in The Wind Waker, goodbye to another games industry member as they set sail for the deserted realms of Final Games. Joining me this week is a writer and reviewer who's been writing about video games ever since 1999, dating back to the days of the Dreamcast and the PlayStation 2, starting out in those days writing as a freelancer for PC Magazine. My guest then in 2008 joined the unfortunately now defunct 1UP.com team to work as a production assistant on their game video side, where he worked capturing game footage and assisting on the 1UP show. But it was in 2011 when my guest took on an editor role at GameSpot.com, he started to become the noted writer he is today for his excellent reviews and analysis. For the past six years, he's progressed from writing to also becoming one of the site's biggest faces, appearing in multiple videos, lending his voice to the site's video reviews, and also appearing weekly on GameSpot's The Lobby. That's not to say he left behind his writing roots though, no. In fact, in 2015 he was promoted from editor to become GameSpot's senior reviews editor. I'm excited to say that my guest this week is one of my favorite reviewers in the industry, GameSpot's Mr. Peter Brown. Hello, Peter. Liam, hi. Uh, wow. <laughs> <laughs> thank you. Thank, thank you very much. Peter, thank you so much for joining us today. Uh, how are you doing? I'm doing very well. Uh, it's a beautiful day in San Francisco, celebrated my girlfriend's birthday last night, and I'm here with you. Oh, excellent. Excellent. That sounds like a very... And uh, have you got exciting plans for the weekend coming up as well? Uh, well I'm in the middle of purging most of my uh, retro game collection. So making a big push towards that, but I'm also picking up a, uh, a high-end uh, broadcast CRT monitor. So out with the old and in with the old, as it were. Um. <laughs> <laughs> sounds like an exciting four days though yeah. like one of those times where you're like oh god every day for the next few days is going to be great um by purging though what do you what do you mean are you like getting rid of your entire collection or just games that maybe you don't want anymore or i'm, I'm narrowing it down i think for a while um i was collecting and the thought that well okay i'll build a library of games that i find interesting uh, even if i don't have the time to play them right now i can reference them in the future uh, that, that's a beautiful dream to have, but it's one that doesn't yes. really meet up with reality, <laughs> and, uh, especially in a city like San Francisco. So I've, I've run out of space, and I've realized that I've sort of lost my collection within my collection. So I'm trying to get down to the things that I really uh, care about that are very important yeah. to me that I could never part with. So it's I'm getting rid of a few hundred games at least. Yeah. Wow. Are you, are you like... So I know there's this sort of thing that's happened in the past two, few years where we've started seeing like video game museums and stuff like that. Right. Um, are you selling yours or do you have some interesting pieces that maybe you're going to like give to friends or donate to a museum or that kind of thing? Or is it just, I'm going to sell all these and then I'm going to buy games I actually want? Uh, it's a it's a mix. Uh, like I have a friend in LA who I'm going to give um, a Sega CD to when I go to E3. Uh, I have a, a brand new sealed uh, PlayStation 2, the launch model, the very first one. Probably going to give that to the uh, Video Game His uh, Preservation Society, uh, so that okay. can find its way into a museum if they you know deem it fit, or if they just want to hold on to it. Um, there's also yeah. a place in Oakland called The Maid, which is a mix of a museum and a school uh, where they teach kids you know how to make games and teach them about the history of game development. Uh, so I'll probably be donating uh, some stuff to them. The rest of it I'll be selling um, a few things on eBay, but there's a local Bay Area uh, vintage gaming group. And uh, there's a lot of good trading and selling on there, so I'll probably just sell as much as I can in big lots and just get it out of my hair. <laughs> 
It's funny because we were talking just before we started recording uh, that last October you were here in Japan. Yes. And I remember there were a few, uh, well, mainly the big Japan gaming podcast being 8-4, those wonderful guys at 8-4. Uh, you were a guest on that uh, show for that episode in October. And I remember you talking about a lot of the things that you were wanting to buy or trying to get hold of. Mm. So has your mind sort of changed from then uh, or are you keeping those goods you bought in Japan or have you sort of started, ah, maybe I shouldn't be spending so much money on superfluous games? Uh, it's interesting. I, I think my tastes tend to lean towards uh, Japanese games for, you know, versions of games for various reasons. So I'm actually getting rid of mostly US stuff. Um, and, and that podcast is a pretty good reflection of, of where I am at today, which is looking for uh, PC Engine and Sega Saturn games primarily, um, focusing on arcade ports. Uh, because I'm realizing, you know, as I try to play older games, uh, when I find the time, picking up something that is built for the arcade is a lot easier to get immediate enjoyment out of versus obviously trying to play an RPG and only having a few hours. Yeah, so picking up something like uh, some of the old SNK games, mm -hmm. uh, those quick pick-up-and-play, um, just have a bash for 15 minutes, um, get as far as you can, uh, in instead of owning, like, a U.S. copy of... Chrono Trigger or something like that. Well, that happens to be one of my absolute favorite games. So that one I will hold on to. <laughs> well, I'm looking at my Japanese copy of Chrono Trigger on my shelf over there next to the only other Super Nintendo games I really have, which are like Final Fantasy VI and uh, Mega Man X and stuff like that. So I am very much... I understand where you're coming at from surprisingly enough when I came to Japan I had to sort of sell and get rid of most of the things I'd collected over the years in the UK um, and then the, you you would feel that the temptation would be overwhelming once you came to Japan but you kind of see it all of the time that your eyes are only then trained to see what's maybe special yeah. or outstanding once in a while so you may you end up not getting as much as you think you would which is strange. Yeah, I can't imagine what I would be like in that environment. I've been to Japan <laughs> a little under 10, 10 times, but yeah, man, if I lived there, that would be dangerous. I, I, John uh, over at 8.4, uh, Ricciardi, he's, he's got a pretty big collection, but I don't know where he keeps it all. But every once in a while, he'll you know bust out a lot of photos on Instagram or something. Um, yeah. Somehow he manages like to he do go, it. He goes back to the, he like, uh, the more interesting stuff, I think he like keeps back in the US. And then every time he goes back to the US, he like trawls through boxes uh, and boxes somewhere and finds some really interesting things. But living in Japan, yeah, I have, I have no idea how anyone has an apartment big enough to even have a modest size collection. So <laughs> I'm surprised not many people here have it. Um, but Peter, we are here to talk about video games. But first we should talk a little bit about you and what you do. You are GameSpot's senior reviews editor, but tell me a little bit how you sort of got in the industry and where you are now. What what does your role as senior reviews editor after all these years now entail? Um, well, there's there's kind of no way to beat around the bush in terms of how I got into the industry, and it, it's it's a bit strange uh, in that uh, tech media is sort of a family business. Um, so my father had written for PC Magazine for close to 20 years um, wow. before he stopped working for them. Uh, my brother worked for PC Magazine. Uh, he is now an executive editor over at CNET. As you know, I've worked at 1UP and, and it's now GameSpot. Uh, yeah. So, you know, long story short, I grew up in an environment where the job I have now is just normal. It, that's, that's what I knew. 
so by the time the Dreamcast came out, I had the itch to kind of start doing this. And it was really as simple as, you know, I, it, I, it was nepotism, honestly. <laughs> like I, <laughs> and I hate to say that, but I can't get her. I, there's no way to avoid it. Um, you know, I asked yeah. my father, look, I'd like to review the Dreamcast for PC Magazine. Is anyone doing that? Do they care? And he simply just asked his editor. I mean, he was a contractor. He didn't work. He wasn't an employee there. So it's not like he pulled strings. He just kind of presented the pitch. They said, okay. And the rest, as they say, is kind of history. Um, You must have only been a teenager, though. 14, yeah. Wow, 14 and reviewing the brand new Dreamcast console. Oh, I was... That's that's incredible. I was beside myself. Because I I was looking forward to the, the console anyway. So to get it ahead of time and then to have the power to call up publishers and, and ask for, you know, an advanced copy of their game and get it in the mail, that was, <laughs> that was unreal. As, as the, in the role you are now, can you even imagine, uh, can you even imagine hiring a 14-year-old freelancer, let alone trusting that 14-year-old to ring up, say, Sony and ask for the latest God of War or something like that? <gasps> That's a difficult question because I I see some very intelligent writing out there from people that are years younger than me, and I'd hate to ever pigeonhole someone based on their age. But I think, but I generally, think 14, right, yes, 14 is yes, very young. Yes, generally that would be something of a red flag for me. Um, <laughs> but, you know, to... We, we, sorry, uh, we, were you a talented 14-year-old, though? No, I don't think so. <laughs> okay. I don't want to, I don't want to assume anything. Um but, you know, I will say I did stuff for PC Magazine for a bit. They, they didn't really support gaming um, as much as, well, I mean, it's probably not a surprise, right? They're, they're, they're focused on PC hardware. Console gaming was my thing. Um, so I actually wanted to go to school for, um, for 3D modeling. So I completed a, I have a bachelor's in fine art uh, and visual effects. And that's actually how I got my job at one Um because I had a lot of, you know, visual effects experience, and they needed someone to work on video, and so my skill set kind of worked there. Um, and that's kind of how I springboarded the rest of my career. Like, yeah, my brother kind of works for like the same umbrella corporation that I do, but I yeah. didn't even put his name on my application. Like, I didn't want there to be, <laughs> I didn't want there to be any evidence that I, you know, <laughs> utilized my connections, as it were. Um, yes. And uh, yeah, so I, that, that's kind of how I ended up here was was going to school for something that I don't use at all anymore. So now you've been at GameSpot for, I guess, coming up to or around six years, which is a heck of a long time. And um, you are now GameSpot's senior reviews editor. So as senior reviews editor, sort of what does your job entail now? Uh, my job you know, entails... A lot of management. Um, we have some in-house writers, obviously, and I don't directly manage everything they do. But you know, when it comes to reviews, I sort of manage that part of their job. Um, and to make reviews happen, it's a matter of talking to publishers and getting code when we can. If we can't, uh, getting the game as fast as possible into the right people's hands. And we have you know teams in the UK and the AU. Uh, and so then I also have freelancers that I directly manage as well. So uh, you know, work with them and getting their work in, in good shape and sort of finding their voice for GameSpot. Um, and then I'll review games. You know, we, we try to put our best, I don't want to say I'm the best foot, but, you know, be, being sort of a senior editor, they, they want to show that, like, okay, we're putting someone uh, that we hold, you know, with great esteem, like, up for the biggest games. So when something like Breath of the Wild comes around, um, you know, I'll generally tackle the big stuff. 
I try to look at games that maybe don't get much attention when I have the time. Um, but these days, there's so much management to handle. Uh, and, yeah. there's, and there's things like the lobby as well. So I, I kind of wear a lot of hats here. And at this stage, I'm, you know, I'm one of the old, the older, older folks at GameSpot. We've, we've sort of, yeah, yeah, we've got a lot of young people on, on staff and I, they impress me all the time. Uh, they intimidate me with how, you know, with their work ethic and how well they write. So it's, it's a very interesting dynamic where I feel old, but at the same time, I really do respect the younger people that are here. Um, it's an interesting time to be at GameSpot because we've been through a lot of change. Yeah, I was going to say you have been through a lot of change. Obviously, you, Danny and Mary, um, going and stuff like that. Um, but what I was going to say, and you sort of hit on it a little bit, is uh, I have noticed that you do sort of tackle the bigger, the bigger. I don't want to say like you keep them for yourself, but you are probably the most senior writer on staff, and uh, stuff like that comes through. Maybe it's your chance to review something. Um, but I, I will admit, I feel like over the past few years, you've definitely sort of found a very distinctive voice and your reviews stand out a lot to me as well as someone who's got writing experience and you have a very distinct voice. Um, how do you feel like your sort of own reviewing has progressed over the years? It's Do you, do you it's, know what your style is like and what your voice is like? Or is it just something that you don't think about, you just write and then it is what it is? Writing is a challenge for me quite honestly. And I, I don't really have a good idea of what my voice is. I mean, quite frankly, sometimes I'll go back and read a review and either be embarrassed or shocked like that I was so stressed out when I was writing this review because they're all stressful for me. It's rare that I'm able to write something, um, you know, just by sitting down and just putting my thoughts directly on the page. Uh, so I, I have, I'd be fascinated to know what my voice is. Um, but I can, I can tell you that over the years, it's certainly changed. Uh, Due to help from people like Kevin Van Ord, Carolyn Pettit, uh, Chris Waters, and Sean McInnes, uh, all former GameSpot employees, uh, yeah. who, were, who were here when I joined, and they they had a really big impact on not just you know how to write a review, but really how to consider a game, what it's telling you, and what's important. About it's funny because you obviously mentioned Kevin, and we've had Kevin on the show before, and Kevin sort of said spoke about the same thing but from how he learned from greg kasavin before him mm. and uh it, it seems like it's almost been passed down the torch has been passed down and you sort of come on board as a fresh young-faced employee who maybe has a little experience and then you sort of get shown the ropes in a certain way and i, I feel like one thing that has been incredibly consistent about gamespot is people have developed very quickly and become some of the I would I want to say like most important writers in our industry, very consistent people. Um, do you sort of see that coming through now as well with the younger people that you have to sort of manage and um, help along to? They bring so much talent to the table. I actually have to do very little work uh, as far as they're concerned. Um, it's it's been it's been really gratifying to just see that we've gotten just amazing just positive people and, and very intelligent people in-house. So, you know, we, we have an internal uh, QA process and it can be pretty rigorous. I think everyone learns something from that because it's sort of, you know, no punches pulled, very direct feedback. Um, because our readers are, are very uh, brutal, not necessarily in terms of your writing style, but they're, but they're very quick to pick anything apart. So yeah. we, we try to be as uh, strict as possible when it comes to making sure people are 
presenting arguments and are backing them up with evidence, um, but also, you know, keeping the audience interested with their writing. So, you know, I think everyone can always learn how to do those things better. But uh, compared to where I maybe saw myself when I started, the people we have now, they've got a huge, you know, big leg up compared to where I was. Excellent. Well, it it does seem that sort of after a period of change, you've weathered the storm and now... there is all you you've sort of also got this whole load of video content that has sort of changed over the years as well and there are lots of different shows coming out of GameSpot as well which I think is kind of developing with the times which is great but also keeping that writing roots which uh, a lot of people were drawn to GameSpot initially for I think is really good um but Peter we are now here to talk about video games. Um, I mean, that is your job. So this is kind of like a busman's holiday for you. I do apologize about (laughs) that. Um, But they are games that you have chosen and games, obviously, that you have some affinity for. So I think you'll have no problem talking about them. (laughs) Very much so. But we have eight games now that we're going to talk about. So why don't we listen to some music from this first game, which I know you are a very, very big fan of. Um, there used to be a GameSpot podcast when Alexa was at uh, GameSpot. I what was it called? The why uh, am I forgetting the name now? Airship. Airship. Yes, of course, Airship. And it was all about uh, RPGs and JRPGs. And I remember specifically a lot of uh, talk about this next game. So why don't we listen to some music from this next game and let's dive straight into Peter's final games. So kicking off Peter's final games today is a game that I have tried to play multiple times, um, but I've never been able to finish it. I don't know why. It's a great game. I really enjoy it. I've just never had the time to finish it, uh, whether it was the PlayStation 1 version or the sort of PlayStation Classics version on the PlayStation Vita and stuff like that. Um, it's a game that released back in 1997 in Japan, and then a year later in North America in January of 1998. It's the tactical role-playing game made by Square, produced by the one and only Final Fantasy man himself, Mr. Sakaguchi-san, as well as designed by Hiroyuki Itoi, who's gone on to do some great things. It's, of course, I, I don't think your final games list would be complete without it, Peter. It's Final <laughs> Fantasy Tactics. Uh, it has to be on there. It, it's my favorite game. Of all time. <laughs> Which is when you're going to go to a deserted place to play games for the rest of your life. I mean, one of them has to be a game that you really, really love, correct? Yes. Uh, there, are, <laughs> there are several on the list, but this one is certainly the top. So tell me a little bit then, if the choice is so obvious, why is Final Fantasy Tactics that choice? 
broadly speaking, it encapsulates um, my my favorite things about video games, right? It and that that's a lot of different things. It's music, it's presentation, it's uh, you know depth of gameplay, uh, it's challenge, it's an interesting story, uh, and, and I think it has all of those things and, and handles them really well. It's by no means a perfect game, but I think its imperfections actually make it a bit more charming in some ways. So, are you a fan of the Final Fantasy series in general? Because Final Fantasy Tactics came sort of a... I mean, you were reviewing games a, a year after this game came out. So, you were very hardcore all, also already into your video games. So, you must have played Final Fantasy games before that. Uh, yes, my cousins had introduced me uh, when I was very young to Final Fantasy IV, and that was sort of the first you know turn-based RPG I'd ever seen, and it had it just had me so confused. <laughs> I was like, okay, wait. Normally, you would press a button to do an action, but you're going through a menu, and I thought this is this is so boring. Um, but then I sat and I watched for a few hours, and uh, it didn't take long for me to become a convert. Uh, and from that point on, you know, I played uh, six. In, in the U.S., these were Final Fantasy two and three. Um, so I had played those two games and Final Fantasy seven uh, before getting to Tactics. So I was a fan, but not necessarily from the beginning. It had been probably about you know, five six years. Uh, yeah, yeah. But but you had like you had had a history with Final Fantasy then before you played Tactics. Yeah. What specifically was it about? I mean, you must have, in those days with no internet and sort of only magazines, you must have picked up Final Fantasy Tactics expecting a Final Fantasy game and not actually what you got. Well, I was an avid reader of uh, many magazines, and uh, the thing that, that caught me first about Tactics was uh, its, pre- its visual presentation. Um, I, lo- I, to this day, still love the 16-bit aesthetic. Um, I think it strikes a really interesting balance uh, in terms of expression within like a limited amount of tools and possibilities. And Final Fantasy Tactics was just a, a graduated form of that without sort of spoiling the, you know, the, the primitive essence that made it special. So like, yes, it wasn't really low-res sprites at this point, but it still had that same... It, it, it sort of fulfilled the image in my head when I translated those pixels, pixels into my imagination, if that makes sense. So, yeah. so seeing that on the page of these magazines, um, reading about the opportunities of the depth uh, to combat, that did uh, really attract me. I mean, I knew I wasn't going to get something like Final Fantasy IV or Final Fantasy VI, um, but that said, I was still surprised many times over and continue to be every time I play the game. So one thing about Final Fantasy Tactics that I've come to realize over the years is it's Actually, a JRPG with an incredible story. And when I had a uh, former GameSpot uh, employee, Greg Kasavin, on the show, he chose Final Fantasy Tactics as well. And one of the major reasons he cited was because of the story. Yes. He reviewed it all the way back in the day, and uh, I think he gave it like a 9 out of 10. Um, but the story was the reason he was taking it. Um, was the story an important aspect for you? Because you've, you've talked about the gameplay a lot. Um but you haven't really touched on the story. So I'm wondering if it's more a gameplay choice than it is a story choice. Uh, no, it's not necessarily gameplay first. The, the story is a little bit confusing. So certainly the first few times I played it, you know, in the late 90s, um, I, I wasn't able to, to really grasp everything. And, and that's partially due to the original localization being a little messy. 
Um, yeah. But the thing that struck me almost immediately about this game is that it doesn't waste any time trying to be cute. Um, it sets up a conflict very quickly. Um, that conflict showcases the ramifications of people sort of like fumbling, uh, you know, the resolution. Um, and then it very quickly goes back and forth between this sort of grand scale um, war versus this sort of interpersonal stuff happening on people who you know exist on different sides of uh, the class line, as it were, like you know royalty versus uh, peasant, that kind of or commoner, that kind of thing. Um, yeah, yeah. So it's the story is, I'd say, one of the reasons I continue to take the game seriously because the gameplay is something that you can just totally exploit. I mean, it's hard to take the, the, the gameplay too seriously now, having played it so many times, but the, sto- <laughs> the story continues to be, it continues to be um, d- effectively dramatic for me every time I play it. Which is weird for a JRPG because I, there are only a sort of a handful I can name that maybe have been praised for their story over the years. We've yeah. had some of the earlier Final Fantasies, I think obviously Final Fantasy VI, which was Final Fantasy III in North America when it first released, um, Three Corden to uh, Final Fantasy Tactics. There aren't that many that have been noted over the years for their story, but one that does always stick out is Final Fantasy Tactics. Because of that, almost Game of Thrones-like story to it absolutely i mean that is yes 100 percent. and i i always feel bad like i do need to go back and finish it like i i need to push all the way through it i'm not sure what holds me back each time i don't know whether it is time or because this is a big game as well just like any other final fantasy um but you've played through it multiple times, so I should be able to get through it at least once. <laughs> I, can, I can tell you that the barrier to entry for you may be like about five, six battles in, the difficulty ramps up very quickly. And there's one battle in particular that's even when I play now, it's like I get halfway through it and it's like, okay, right, I have to do it this way. And so I have to exit and you know, take, care of, <laughs> take care of business before I jump back in. I mean, the game is is very lopsided in that way. Um, it, it'll go from exciting battles to really boring and simple battles, just, you know, one after the other. Um, but yeah, I, I think you should definitely play it. It's certainly, um, you know, when you consider uh, the director, uh, Yasumi Matsuno, his work, uh, it, it feels like it shares that similar tone to something like Tactics Ogre, Ogre Battle, uh, Vagrant, yeah. Vagrant Story as well. Um, yeah. Yeah, so if you like the tone of those games, I certainly recommend getting back to tactics. So speaking of tactics then, in terms of like how the series has progressed, we obviously had uh, the Tactics Advance games, uh, we had the port of Final Fantasy Tactics being the War of Lions <laughs> and stuff like that. How, how, how do you feel about the other games in the series? Have you enjoyed them just as much? Or do you feel that tactics was kind of... This was really special, and they haven't really touched upon it since. Because obviously, we've not seen anything like it. I think uh, Matsuno had that Kickstarter. I can't remember what it was called, like Unsung Story, I think, mm-hmm. that failed massively. Um, but that was kind of the only thing, I think, in recent times that we can feel has any semblance of what the Final Fantasy Tactics DNA was. How, how have you felt as the series has gone and to be at the point where... It's almost like a failed Kickstarter now. <laughs> uh, remember when I said that I appreciate tactics because it doesn't waste any time being cute? Well, uh, the opposite is true <laughs> for the tactics advanced games. 
which uh, puts you in a modern day elementary school where you find a magical book that transports you back into the time of the voice. <laughs> and I, yeah, I can't do it. <laughs> I just can't yeah, do oh, it. <laughs> is, it is, is that the one that has the snowball yes. uh, fight at the beginning as a tutorial? Yes, you have a snowball fight to learn how to play a game that many people were returning <laughs> to because they loved the first one. Um, <laughs> I, I guess they were trying to introduce it to a younger audience, but as a fan who had kind of matured with the first game, it was just not for me. Um, and the same can be said of the second one as well. They, they also had like a weird, there was a weird judge system. Uh, somebody would sort of dictate the rules of battle. Uh, so I felt that uh, some of the control was wrenched away from me, which at first I thought was intriguing, but in practice, the things that I liked about Final Fantasy Tactics, I no longer had that available to me, which is yeah just complete freedom right um so yeah that was unfortunate uh beyond that monsuno worked on a dungeon crawling game that came out on the 3ds it was like a, it was a mix of like dungeon crawling and like card battles i tried to get into that but it was very dense unfortunately i can't really speak much beyond that but but the Kickstarter you mentioned, that one's certainly interesting. I met with Matsuno and um, a representative from the the publisher who was who had the studio that was actually working on that game. Um, yeah. as, as far as I'm aware, Matsuno wasn't actually involved with it as much as they made it seem. Um, I think just a name for the Kickstarter to launch off. He I guess. he was providing them with some guidance. The way he described it to me was like, "Yeah, I've got some ideas, and I'm basically just giving them those ideas." You know, he wasn't like overseeing <laughs> development in any okay. way. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, uh, okay. Yeah. So no real surprise there. Uh, but I am pleased to know that he is working on a new game uh, with Akihiko Yoshida. I believe also with uh, Hitoshi Sakamoto, um, with uh, Platinum Games being the primary developer. Uh, and this is going to be a mobile game. The name escapes me right now. I don't believe it's a tactical game. Oh, I think I remember. It's got oh, like a really. I think it's got like a order. really generic. Yes, it's got like a really generic game. I think it was announced last year. Um, like yeah. Um, I mean, I'm looking forward to that. They've got the team back yeah. together. You know, teams back together, and it's got platinum behind it. Yeah. I don't know. Platinum do action really well, but I don't know about maybe tactics or yeah. dungeon crawling. Yeah, it would be very interesting though. Certainly. Um, but yeah, I think <laughs> we'll know, see. Tactics is certainly, the original one is certainly uh, the standout for me. I've been, I've tried playing Tactics Ogre many times over the years, um, but that game just doesn't, doesn't do it for me for some reason. I actually like it very much, but I find it hard to stick with it, maybe in the same way that, that you do with Final Fantasy Tactics. Yeah. Because that came first. It did, yeah. That was Matsuno's sort of. Tactics was like Matsuno's spiritual successor to that. Yes, and then um, yeah, and then Quest was purchased. Um, by, did Square Enix purchase Quest? Oh, I can't I'm, remember I'm what happened them. to Quest. But yeah, that was kind of Tactics Ogre really set the stage for Final Fantasy Tactics. So stuff. Excellent. Well, I mean, what better way to kick off a list than than your favorite game of all time? I mean. <laughs> <laughs> it's such a great introduction and it's kind of like one of those keepsakes that you hold close to your chest you're like well if i'm going to be stranded on a goddamn deserted island i might as well take something that gives me some semblance of comfort it gives me just i mean nostalgia is something that i value highly and it for that fact alone the, the opening cutscene just hits me it's a 
you know, there's a, a royal girl who is in a church, you know, being uh, protected by a priest. Uh, some, some vagrants are coming to kidnap her and you're teamed up with a sort of a mercenary who's a real dick. And you're trying your best to protect her <laughs> and you can't do it. And your childhood best friend who betrayed you ends up taking the princess. It's just like all these things that throws at you right away. It just immediately gets me you know, back in the moment as I play that game again. So, yes, I could play this for the rest of my life. Excellent. Totally content. <laughs> well, I'm going to give it to you and you're going to be able to take it with you alongside the upcoming seven games. So why don't we listen to some music from this next game, which um, we spoke a little bit before we started recording. And the reason you are taking it is very interesting. Um, So let's listen to some music from this next game and let's dive straight into it. So, Peter, as always, before we talk about our guest's second game on their list, we have to talk a little bit about the deserted place in which we are sending you. Um, We are giving you eight games, which is a very nice and positive thing, but we are also condemning you to uh, an eternity alone on a deserted island. So the least we can do is make it nice or accustomed to your uh, maybe own desires in a way but the way you can do that is you have to choose a place from video games to be stranded so we allow you the choice but the rules are it's deserted um so there are no npcs there are no characters that can help you there's no one there you can talk to but if you choose a place that maybe has monsters uh or things that maybe want to kill you well they are going to be there so you have to be careful about that so that has to be employed into your decision-making when it comes to choosing your deserted place. Oh, I didn't know this was a thing. <laughs> oh. What immediate... This is great, then, because the people who know about it put a lot of effort into choosing about it. And the people who maybe it catches off guard, it's like the all of the places that spring to mind instantly are the more interesting. I've Okay, yes. I know what I'd like to do. Uh, Kuromacho from uh, Yakuza 0, which is effectively Osaka. Yes. So, so you want to go to... The, the problem with that one, though, is it's a lot smaller than, I think, and a lot more... It, it essentially is only Nip, Nipponbashi and Dotonbori. So it's quite small. Yes, my friend, it is packed with activities and packed with food. Um, That's true. You can go to Don Quixote yes. and you will forever <laughs> have all the food in the world. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I, I believe there is a batting cage. I believe there is bowling uh there's obviously arcades 
I think there's a booth where I can watch softcore porn. Uh. There is. That's true. Uh, there's also, I mean, there's a cabaret club, yes. which is useless, but those seats look pretty good to sleep in. Yeah. So you could also go there. Yeah. Um, um, if I had to there's pick, always karaoke. Yes, there is always karaoke and disco dancing as well. <laughs> um, but if I had to pick somewhere perhaps more befitting of, you know, a natural setting. Hmm. That's... See, I think you. I think you should just go with Osaka from Yakuza because that okay. is a great choice. Okay. That is that is the great choice. All right, I'll stick with my gut. It sounds good. <laughs> so we're going to send you to the uh, sort of fictional area in Osaka that is where Mashi, uh, Majima is in Yakuza Zero. So it's all eighties themed as well. So the technology is going to be a little behind. Perfect. Not that you can call anyone <laughs> or anything. And the fact is you save in that game using phone booths, but none of the phone booths will work for you. Okay. I'm sorry. Okay. All right. We can't, we can't have you calling anyone. But the next <laughs> game you're going to be playing in between your batting time and also karaoke time is uh, a game that is, well, it's being re-released now for new platforms on the Switch and also the PlayStation 4, but it released back in 2014 on the 3DS, the Wii U, PlayStation Vita, and PlayStation 3. It's a sort of fusion of two very popular puzzle platforms, especially one of them being Tetris, and the other being uh, Sega's Sonic Team's Puyo Puyo series. And it's a blending of the two to be a sort of versus game called Puyo Puyo Tetris. Peter. Yes. Now, you have said to me you've played both the Puyo Puyo series and the Tetris series pretty extensively. Yeah. But you have never played Puyo Puyo Tetris. Nope. <laughs> so, you're going to you're going to go with your gut and you're going to choose it as one of your only final games deserted choices. Yes. Because it allows me to cheat a little bit in that I kind of get two games in one. Um but that said, you know, this this has I believe I have an internet connection, right? On in live. You do. Okay. So multiplayer is a thing. I don't need to communicate with people when playing these games. I can communicate by crushing them with my tetrameters <laughs> and my puyos. Um and uh yeah, I mean I think everyone loves a good competitive game and something you know, Tetris seems very simple, but when you see those people that are the the pro Tetris players there's a huge ceiling uh, for mastery, a very high ceiling for mastery, rather. So um, I think I can play these games and improve over the years and have a lot of awesome competition along the way. It's a very simple proposition. There's not, there's not a whole lot of depth <laughs> to this decision. I, I played the demo the other day of Puyo Puyo Tetris on the Nintendo Switch in bed, and I... I haven't really played a Puyo Puyo game before. <clears throat> I've played Tetris a lot. But what I didn't understand was how you can register the score of Puyo Puyo versus the Tetris. Because, like, in the game, you choose a character, and the character has a corresponding puzzle game to it. So either you choose a Puyo Puyo character or a, a made-up Tetris character. And then you play that game style versus the other person, whether they chose Puyo Puyo or Tetris. But I'm not really sure how they how they can sync up the scores or how you know who's doing better or what. It was really confusing to me. I had no idea what was going on. I mean, yeah, the the goals that you're you're shooting for, they're not analogous. I mean they're very you know, they're different. It's, so I'm with you. I don't know. It's like playing Street Fighter and um some 
other game, maybe Tetra, uh, maybe like tennis, like virtual tennis or something <laughs> at the same time. <laughs> Two competitive games that somehow their scores are matching and you know you're doing better than the other in one version of it, but I'm not really sure how it registers. And also you can like push your blocks or your Puyo Puyos onto the other player. So you could like transfer your Puyo Puyos and they become Tetraminos. How weird. Um, I'm not really sure how it works. Yeah. I someone who is someone who is an avid Puyo Puyo Tetris person is screaming at their their <laughs> device right now. But I'm not really sure. But aesthetically and uh, visually, it was I, it was awesome. So I kind of want to pick it up for the Switch so I can play it on the go. It seems like that would be a really cool game to be playing on the go. Do you have a sort of version in mind to take with you? Uh, well, given. I mean, I really love the Switch right now. It'd be it'd be hard to say anything but that, uh, given the fact that it's convertible. <laughs> honestly, <laughs> tell me then a little bit before we move on from this game. What is your history with Puyo Puyo and Tetris? Then I think Tetris is probably self-explanatory, but Puyo Puyo is a little more mm, unique and yes. niche. So, not many games get localized in that series, right? Um, I, I think it, it must have been in high school. Um, started to get into Japanese games, importing Japanese games, and uh, was a big collector of Super Nintendo games at the time. And you know, it was pretty well known that you could uh, play Japanese games on your U.S. system by simply breaking two plastic tabs inside the cartridge slot, and you're good to go. Uh, so I did that. Went on eBay, bought a lot of Super Famicom games, and uh, there was a Puyo Puyo game on Super Famicom, and so I had that. And uh, yeah. It was very charming. I was uh, very much into uh, Super Puzzle Fighter 2 Turbo. Um, yeah. Yes. So it kind of reminded me a little bit of that, at least in terms of the presentation and uh, somehow, you know, somewhat the mechanics of the puzzle aspect. Um, and that's how that's kind of how I came to it. There was also a Kirby game. I think it was Kirby's Avalanche on the Super Nintendo as well, um, which was essentially Kirby but Puyo Puyo. So those are the two games that I had kind of played uh, the most of. Um, how I can't, I don't even think I can name. So there was Puyo Pop. Was that that was for the GameCube? Ooh, is okay. that the same series, or is that like a spin-off series? It's the same. Puyo Puyo. It's the same series. Um, it just has a different name. Yeah, I think there's just different uh, like subseries. Maybe it's just dependent on the platform. Um, I should say also, I had a Neo Geo Pocket Color, and I remember now there was a Puyo, Puyo game on there. Um, okay. Yeah, Puyo Pop is... I'm trying to look that up right now. I guess that was the North American and European name for a while, according to Wikipedia. For the whole series in, entirely? So Puyo Puyo was just Puyo Pop? I guess so, yeah. In, in the West? Yeah, but I don't even remember ah, us okay. getting any in the West until... At least in North America until recently. I guess on Game Puyo Boy Advance. Maybe, because Puyo Pop is the only one I can really think of. That's mm. my sort of only reference point when it comes to this series. Gotcha. But it seems I've noticed, especially with the announcement of the Switch one coming to the West, because I was interested in picking up the Japanese copy uh, on launch day when it came out here in Japan, uh, but I sort of held off a little bit. Zelda and all that happened. Um, but... When it was announced in the direct that it was coming to the West, there were so many people like tweeting about it and so many people talking about it. It was like, 
Really? Is this like a, a popular series in the West? Have I just completely glanced over this thing? Um, have been people been playing this forever? It just sort of came out of nowhere for me. I think um, like some games, uh, you can credit maybe Giant Bomb uh, with you know spreading the word. Because Jeff and Brad were into uh, Puyo Puyo Tetris. Uh, just when, I, I guess the first Japanese release, I think they imported physical copies of those games. Um, so kind of like how Windjammers has caught a second wind, pun intended. <laughs> um, I think uh, you might be able to credit those guys for some of the popularity over here. That would definitely that would definitely make sense in in some form. The weight in which they do hold would be comparative to uh, how many people were talking about that game when it was on the direct. I was like, really? I I know it looks good, but people have played this series a lot, so. But that was very strange. So you're going to go out on a limb and you're going to use one of your valuable only slots. Um, do you do you think it will be good? Have you play, Have you actually played the demo at all? Nope. <laughs> I haven't touched it. But, but, you know, honestly, it comes down to, I think, having something that's just, you know, purely mechanical um, that is a bit diverse in how it can be played. And then it also gives me an opportunity to compete with those mechanics. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so it's a very straightforward proposition, and I, and I don't think it's hard for me to 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 know that I will like this game. Uh, I'm certainly going to yeah. buy it on Switch when it comes out. Okay, so it, it is kind of one of those things. It's, so many people have chosen Tetris. Um, some people have chosen Panel de Pond over the year, sort of lifetime of the show. So there, are, there is always an element of a puzzle game that can maybe last a while and have incredible replayability and Puyo Puyo Tetris looks like it's going to be one of those games so I think solid choice okay so we'll see unfortunately you can't report back to us um, so I, I I just hope it goes well for you <laughs> <laughs> I love this narrative by the way <laughs> we try to we try to have a little bit of role play here <laughs> But we are going to move on to the next game now. And I don't know what it is about this next game and GameSpot specifically, but you are now the third GameSpot member to have chosen this game. No kidding. Um, no, Danny and Mary before you both chose this game. Um, so I guess it is a it must have been... I think Mary touched on it a little bit about being, it being a massive GameSpot favorite for a, a long time in the office. So let's listen to some music from this next game and let's just dive straight into it.
So the next game on Peter's list is a game that released back in 2015 on PC and on PlayStation 4, originally as part of the PS Plus membership. I don't think many people thought it was going to catch on because the game that it's a sequel of didn't sell very well and had an incredibly long name. But it is a game developed by Psyonix and distributed by 505 Games. It was just breaking the internet for so long and was one of the most talked about games it turned out to be. And I think a big part of that was uh, the amount of games media websites who were talking about it. One of which was GameSpot. And <laughs> as I touched on before, I think it must have been a office favorite there because Peter is now the third GameSpot member to have chosen this game. It is, of course, the soccer video game, Rocket League. Peter, mm-hmm. why is Rocket League the third <laughs> game on your list? Oh, boy. I have an interesting history uh, with Rocket League at GameSpot in particular. Um, when the game first launched I played it and I was like yeah this is really good it's a lot better than the last one they made and I kind of walked away from it everyone around me meanwhile kept playing it kept getting really into it and super excited and and I was happy for them but I just didn't I didn't see all the hype Um, and you know it came time for game of the year deliberations and uh, so many people voted Witcher as number one and I was like okay that's fair Uh, for me Metal Gear Solid 5 Phantom Pain was the best game of the year now, that obviously didn't get the number one slot, um, but the contentious part was what got number two. And so many people, so, so, so many people put Rocket League up there. And, you know, I was very sure of myself that, well, I mean, Metal Gear Solid Five has so many different layers, so many different things going for it. It can be many different things. Rocket League is great. But, you know, it is a very uh, sort of straightforward proposition, and it's sort of what the, the, the people who are playing it make of it. Um, and I relented. So, okay, Rocket League got number two. Didn't feel too bad about it because, hey, it's a team vote. It's not for me only. But that said, I lived with someone uh, from the team, Josh Shaw, who now works at Twitch, and he would play in his room until, like, 2 in the morning and just scream at the top of his lungs, uh, you know, anytime something great or tragic happens. So I eventually had to just start playing again because it was like, all right, I'm not just going to sit here annoyed at my loud roommate. I'm going to engage with him and have fun. And it, it really didn't take long once I started playing the game consistently to realize just how brilliant it is and why it actually may be the most realistic soccer game ever. Um, and I can explain, <laughs> I can explain that in a second. Please Please do, please do. As a yes. huge soccer fan, I do want to hear your justifications for that. It is, it is a bit odd, but you'll have to stick with me. Um, <laughs> okay. Do you, do you ever play soccer? Have you done it yourself? Have I played soccer for yeah, for yeah, ma- like, many yeah, many for, for twenty stuff. for like twenty four years? <laughs> okay, yeah. So <laughs> played soccer a long time. Yeah, I, I played soccer for a while myself, and uh, as you know, you sort of develop this relationship with the ball, right? Like you you learn how to interact with it, uh, you know, with your foot and your body, and, and how to torque your body to do certain things with the ball you, you have to it's this sort of symbiotic relationship and um the way that a foot interacts with a ball is very similar to the way a car might interact with a ball in rocket league um, okay yeah no i see where you're going with this actually right so while it's by no means a realistic game it's a very um interesting and i think direct representation of the, the, the nuance and difficulty uh, you know that takes place when you're trying to to get a soccer ball to do exactly what you want to do and you know I'm also a lapsed athlete like I 
all I cared about was, was athletics and video games forever. And that sort of lopsided into just video games. And yeah. I sports games hadn't evolved enough to where I cared about playing them anymore. Um, I mean, Wii Sports was more important to me than the next FIFA. But Rocket League has totally reignited my passion for you know a competitive sports video game uh, because I think it, it does really call upon so many of the, uh, the the mental and physical faculties of you know coordination that uh, I would use in, in real life. Okay, so the idea is that the car is essentially just a foot, yes. and the and the 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 way you would dribble a ball with your foot is essentially you would do exactly the same with car. Well, not exactly the same. It's not a one to one, but the idea in terms being- of like. Sort of like touching it with the nose, just like you would touch it with the tip of your toes if you were sure. definitely running along. Yes, it's not like FIFA where you hit a button to pass and the ball will get to the place you expected it to. You know, assuming no one's in the way. I mean, you yeah. ha- you have you are responsible for every amount of physics that plays into uh, that action in Rocket League. Uh, okay. Do you know what? That's a pretty good justification that I've never really thought about, actually. The idea that it is almost like the limb that is the most important part of playing soccer. Yeah. Um, and I, and I have being to, that. Yeah, I have to credit Chris Waters with giving me that that I, that concept to think about. Um, and when he told me the first time, I was like, you were just trying to come up with any reason to get this game in number two. <laughs> uh, but he was... He was genuine, and you know what? He was correct. And I've, I've come to respect, I think, why I like that game because of... Uh, not respect why I like it, but you know, respect the game a little bit more because it, it really did take something that's hard to replicate. Like, if you tried to make a real, a really realistic soccer game with that kind of quality to it, I don't know how you'd pull it off. But you, you disembody that foot, and you give it a, <laughs> a jet on the back, and uh, you know, all of a sudden, you've got Rocket League in it worse so talking about now then obviously it was a big hit within the GameSpot office when it came out and i think probably for a few months long standing how about now then are you still playing it are you still getting together with some of the GameSpot team especially the new guys on the team uh and playing yes. or has it died uh, down a little uh well so there was a point in time where there was a rule that had to be put in place at GameSpot where no Rocket League, even during lunch, um, <laughs> you have to play. You have to play after five PM. Um, so, you know, we have drinks in the office like every every other week on a Thursday. So, absolutely, at that point, yes, we'll play in the office. But uh, I'm a I'm a morning person. I wake up very early, even on the weekends, you know, sometimes 5.30, 6 in the morning, uh, just naturally. And my girlfriend likes to sleep until noon, and that is the perfect time for me to get three to four hours of Rocket League in. And uh, I play with strangers, primarily online. Um, obviously, none of my friends are awake that early because they're normal people. Um, <laughs> well, I was going to say that's pretty good because... Obviously, we spoke about one of the rules of Final Games is that you can have internet, but you can't communicate with anyone. Yeah. And uh, I know that a big part of Rocket League is playing with friends or having a team that can coordinate. So if you are okay with playing with random people online or strangers and that being your sort of go-to anyway, you're, you're going to be fine for the island then. Yeah, and it works in the sense that you know when I find the stranger, that 
we can sort of like, it feels like we're reading each other's minds and we know exactly where we're going to be and we can coordinate without words. It's an incredible feeling. At the same time, I, I'd be lying if I said I didn't enjoy getting really frustrated at the idiots that I have to play with or against sometimes. I mean, I think it's, it's great that a game can sort of bring out both of those emotions um, because they sort of, they help each other, right? I, I may get really frustrated with someone, but then I can get really excited coming off of that not too long after. Uh, it's just, it's a really exciting game that um, it doesn't relent. It, it keeps you on your toes all the time. How do you feel about all the updates that they've been going? Because obviously now it's become more like um, Rocket Multiple Sports? <laughs> yeah, the uh, the basketball one I was really intrigued about because I had been sort of, you know, just theorizing like, okay, well, they did hockey. What else could they do? Why not basketball? I, you know, I was thinking about all these things and they did it. It wasn't the way I imagined it. I don't yeah. know that my way would have been any better, but ultimately what they put out didn't really do it for me. It, it brought the game to a halt, um, which uh, you know, momentum is one of the things I love about Vanilla Rocket League. I will say the latest mode, Drop Shot, uh, is very interesting in that you know, so much of Rocket League depends on the individual. Um, you know, sometimes you can assist someone and, and put the ball for them, you know, in front of the net, and they can score an easy goal. But for the Just most part. Tap it in. Yeah, but for the most part, it comes down to, I think, really individual uh, effort. But drop shot makes uh, everything a team effort um, in that you essentially have two sides of a court. There's no goal. You, you form a goal on the floor by hitting um, these like hexagon tiles. You have to hit them with the ball twice to open them, well, once to, yeah, twice to open it up, and then you can get the ball through it. Um, so everyone can contribute to creating the goal on the other side of the court. Uh, which is great. So you constantly feel like you're contributing, you know, you feel happy that your teammates are getting things done. Um, so that's really cool. And, and the other side of that too is that it, you have unlimited propulsion. So playing with the ball midair uh, becomes something that you're constantly doing. In Vanilla Rocket League, as you probably know, you have to collect uh, turbo boosts that can quickly deplete. Um, and yeah. so the time you spend in midair is very precious. After you play about, you know, five rounds of drop shot, you suddenly have this uh, like mental acuity for trajectory and uh, um, you know interpolating you know like where the ball is going, where you should be, uh, so that when you play vanilla Rocket League again, you're suddenly far better uh, performing aerials than you may have been before. So I think a drop shot's really good in its own right, but it's also really good as a training tool uh, for the regular game. Excellent. Well, it means that you have plenty of content to uh, take with you. And although you've got endless amounts of soccer games to play, but you can also play like ice hockey and basketball and stuff like that. So perfect. Deserted Island choice. Thank you. <laughs> well, we're going to move on to another game now that has an incredible amount of replayability. And in general, you could just play for hours and hours and even not master it's one of those games that people spend hours and hours in training modes and practice modes, perfecting their combos, perfecting their skills. So why don't we listen to some? Um, I think I'm going to put some very cheesy Japanese to English songs in for this next game because the original title, Indestructible, that song was incredibly cheesy. So I'm definitely going to put that in here now. So let's listen to that and let's dive straight into it.
So I really hope you all enjoyed that because that is one of the most hilarious um, English to Japanese songs, <laughs> or is it Japanese to English songs that was featured on a triple A title in a long time. Um, but the next game, if you did recognize that, you will know is of course, um, well, it's sort of, I mean, it's kind of an update for a video game that exists. Um, and has existed for a long time. It, this update, though, was originally released for the uh, the sort of vanilla game. What is it? Two levels, I think, above the vanilla game. I lost count. <laughs> so uh, maybe maybe three. I think there was three. Super. Then, yeah, it's at least two. It's at least two. Okay, so yes, this was originally released back in 2014, so actually not that long ago, considering um, there has been a sequel to this game since. It was released on, obviously, the PlayStation 3, the Xbox 360, PC, and also the PlayStation 4, and of, of course, arcades here in Japan. It is, of course, the Capcom Fighter Ultra Street Fighter 4. Peter? Not Street yeah. Fighter 5. Not Street Fighter 5. Um... It's difficult to know. <laughs> it's hard to put my finger on it because they're both, in my opinion, great fighting games. Um, but I think I, I enjoy the attitude and the spirit uh, of four more. To say nothing of the gigantic roster as well. Um, it uh, what is you know, it? Something like fifty characters, I think. Sure. Yeah. I mean, <laughs> it's it's up there at least. Um, yeah. You know, for me, fighting games, uh, I've. I've always played them um, since at least you know the 16-bit era. I discovered Street Fighter 2 in the arcades, and obviously spent a lot of time with the home ports. Uh, but I, I've been lucky to have very good friends everywhere I go. I find one person who likes fighting games the way I do, and we can sit down and, and just play matches for hours on end. You know, 50 matches in a day, and uh, it's it's a really good experience. And I, and I understand obviously I'd be by myself on this island. Um, but I also know that, like, as you said, it's, it's very difficult to master any one character in this game to say nothing of mastering multiple characters. <laughs> um, so I, I, I really like the way that Ultra Street Fighter 4 plays. It's got all of my favorite characters from the series, um, in it and, uh, plenty yeah. of other ones that I'm, um, that I've only ever flirted with. So yeah, I think it'd be a great fighting game. And of course it's got online play, so I wouldn't have to well, totally play alone. Exactly. I mean, that's what I was going to say. You can test out your skills, and after all that practice, you can test it out online. Um, so, talking about Street Fighter then, um, Ultra Street Fighter 4 would probably be the one I would choose as well. It's a game I sank oh, so too many, hundreds of hours in university playing this game with friends. Um, but talking about Street Fighter 5 then, what edges Street Fighter 4 in terms of maybe gameplay over Street Fighter V, or is it just that sort of character roster? 
I mean, the simple answer is that it's the character roster because I, I just I don't have a very strong argument um, against Street Fighter V's gameplay. I, it's it's one of those intangible things for me. Um, when I when I play something like Four, it 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 has a sort of uh, a certain life to it that when I play Five, I just don't feel it. Like it doesn't have that right character where I feel charmed by the game if that makes sense. Like, 4 is charming to me for, yeah. some, for some reason. 5, I think <laughs> it just feels so calculated in so many ways. Um, and even the character roster, like it's yeah, it's cool to see some, some characters return that we haven't seen in a while, but it feels like a, a calculated move to just appease longtime fans rather than being like, hey, we have something interesting to do with these characters, and that's why we're bringing them. So, yeah, because kind of, yeah, fans kind of, strangely enough, in the sort of fighting game community, I've noticed that obscure older characters get more attention if they get announced than maybe characters who are actually popular, who people might actually want to play. Right. So, yeah, like I think I think seeing, Rashid, Rashid is probably the more one of the most interesting characters in Five. I think he's great. I mean, you know, his background is obviously it's great to see that represented, but even just on yeah. fighting mechanics alone, I think he's super interesting. Are I have a friend who plays okay. Rashid, and he can be very annoying. <laughs> <laughs> he is, yes. Like, he is uh, almost the equivalent to El Fuerte from uh, Street Fighter IV. <laughs> that that is a very good comparison. Sort of rolling loves, all over the screen. <laughs> yes, I love that kind of character. Just so fun. But even El Fuerte, I think, was was faster, was more nimble, was, was able to be a little bit more tricky. Um, maybe to the point where it was too much for the person controlling him to handle but that, that made it exciting for me so then tell me about about your ultra street fighter history then um who is like your main character who is the like character you know the best uh ibuki is my character for sure ibuki is your character so that is quite a unique character ibuki is a little different obviously you've got all the Shoto characters and then the charge characters. Nabuki's kind of a weird in between the two. Well, she doesn't have uh, any charge moves necessarily, but I can understand no. maybe what you're getting at, and that she's she's good from a distance and she's uh, devastating up close. Um, the, I like that. I like playing Shoto characters, uh, like if I'm doing arcade mode. But against friends, I actually try to discourage anyone from using you know Ken or Ryu or <laughs> because it it honestly gets boring. <laughs> but no, yeah, Ibuki is a character that can. I, it allows me to sort of keep people on their toes and maybe manipulate them around the screen a little bit, um, because I can jump in the air and throw a kunai at them, which might cause them to dash forward. Well, when I land, if they're close enough, I have this like vortex sort of like reverse Hadouken move that I can use um, on them, and then send them back across the screen, and then I can do her like slide down, which she goes into breaking someone's neck you know, midair a few times. And if I'm lucky, I did that with an EX. I mean, it, it's for, it's so much about flow and control when I play um, yeah. in terms of what I enjoy. So she, she totally just encapsulates that. Uh, plus ninjas are cool. <laughs> ninjas are cool, especially like ninjas who are still in school. Yes. Because school <laughs> is also cool. <laughs> school is also cool. Um, would you consider yourself to be a good player? Um. These days, I think that 
I'd be kidding myself if I said yes because it's <laughs> it's crazy to see how good people are. But I'm I'm a competent player. I'd say. Mm, I, I don't I don't know much about the online for Ultra Street Fighter Four now. But do you reckon even being on the island, you would still find quite a huge amount of players, or at least some? That's a really fair question that I had not considered. <laughs> uh, I don't know. It has been it has been a minute since I've played that game. Uh, I would just have to hope, hope and pray. Just just have to hope. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we can try and find like a group of people to keep playing for you. Yeah, so start you, a foundation. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but then maybe if the pool is smaller, maybe you can be the number one. Well, I would hope that you guys would let me do that anyway, just so I can feel better about myself and my situation. <laughs> but yeah, if I can do it through skill, that'd be fine too. <laughs> well, we want you to put those hours and hours of practice to good effect fair enough <laughs> <laughs> well we're going to move on to the next game now and the next game is also sort of in the same area as your Puyo Puyo Tetris choice um, and it is one of those games that it has appeared on Final Games before and I've never personally played it but it does intrigue me and it fits into that category of shit now I'm on a deserted island I have an unholy amount of time to get good at something or literally experiment something to a T to get to know its ins and outs and get the most out of it. And that game, well, this next game definitely fits into that. So let's listen to some music from this next game and let's essentially not dive into it, but let's go into space with it. Next game on Peter's list is a game developed by a developer called Squad. It was originally released back on PC in 2015. I think it was in alpha and beta for an incredibly long time or on Steam, Steve's early access program. Um, it came out on PlayStation 4 in North America and also uh, it came out worldwide in on Xbox One. But for some reason on PlayStation 4, it didn't come out in Europe or has yet to do so. Um, it's a space flight simulation video game featuring some very incredibly cute Kerbal aliens. It's a game called Kerbal Space Program. Peter, why are you going into space? Before I lose this thought, are Kerbals the video game equivalent of Minions? And if so, can I change my mind? Um, <laughs> they certainly look very similar, but yeah. these have two eyes. I yes. would say rabbits as sort of... Oh, okay. the the minions equivalent in the video game world like everybody hates rabbits right cool you've saved my choice i feel i feel better okay <laughs> i hate uh, the rabbits i think the kerbals <laughs> are cute <laughs> uh yeah i mean kerbal space program is another one of those games that i saw people playing around me and it was just 
you know, the most intimidating because it's, uh, as you said, a spaceflight simulation game uh, where you are tasked to not only create very complex uh, spacecraft, uh, basically from scratch, you know, I mean, in, in the sense of a, a video game could be from scratch, but uh, you then also have to pilot it and you have to, you know, accomplish these objectives that are given to you. And, and there's, as far as I'm aware, very little instruction provided. Um, and I have my same friend, Josh Shaw, who got me into Rocket League. He, he is someone who invested so much time into this game. And I rarely ever saw him succeed. Um, but that, that didn't seem to diminish his curiosity. And obviously, it, it maybe just fueled it. Um, it's, uh, it's one of those things that I think makes you uh, think in, in ways that are different than a lot of video games would. And I, I can imagine how... You know, if I've got a puzzle game, I've got a sports game, you know, maybe I need something that's a, that requires a little bit more intelligent thought um, with like a, the, the multi, sort of, multi sort of creative thoughts, the creative de- decision, like it's, the sort of thing creative. that will keep your brain going. Right. Yeah. I mean, it's cre- it's creative, but there's also so many rules behind that creation as well uh, to contend with. So, yeah. Well, you're going to be building a spaceship, so essentially you're going to be doing mathematics. You're also going to be yeah, doing and, science and, and stuff like that. And let's be honest, I need to get off this island. So what game is going to help me learn how to do that? If Fuck. Not purple space program? Fuck, I never thought of that. At least you're not stuck on an island. <laughs> That's true. Um, well, to be fair, because of the incredibly high failure rate when it comes to Kerbals, um, I think you would deserve to get off the island if you did build something in Kerbal that got you into space and then was able to replicate that out of the materials you would find in um, an 80s version of Osaka. I can imagine also having like paper craft or just like crudely made Kerbals around me that I talk to to sort of (laughs) (laughs) to feel like I'm totally immersed in the experience. It would be weird. It would. Huh? Being your Wilsons. Yes. <laughs> it would be a weird time. Um, but hey, things get weird when you're by yourself. <laughs> when you're by yourself. Well, they're cute enough. And as we have established, they're not minions. So you're saved in that regard. And I mean, this is a program, like I would say program. It's a game. But it's a game that's used by NASA and SpaceX. So it's pretty pretty up there in terms of almost replicating the stuff you need to fly into space you're going to require a lot of brain power so you're going to be switched on for a good period of time i mean you have to understand things uh such as patched conic approximation instead of liam full end body simulation um (laughs) so yeah there's a lot to learn (laughs) how how did the guys at squad make this? Like, that's a great question. Like, I just, <laughs> I don't understand how you could think. Do you know what? I have an interest in building spaceships. I'm gonna, I'm gonna learn all about spaceships and how to build them, and then I'm gonna make a video game out of it. I have and to have yeah. other people build it. I have to imagine that they were physicists ahead of time, if not, you know, scholastically, then just you know, on their own spare time, just out of their pure interest. I don't think this is something you stumble into. I think you've got to have a really strong passion to make something like this especially to make it so authentic authentic i mean almost replicative of the exact science needed um 
<laughs> it's just unimaginable to me. My all my spaceships would crash. Even even with the amount of time on an island, I think all my spaceships would crash. Yeah, but th- but man, even that thirty seconds of flight that would feel really <laughs> that would feel good. <laughs> yeah, but oh, dude, there is one thing you haven't thought about though. Oh shoot. One thing you haven't thought about is you know you're going to get really attached to these Kerbals and they are going to be like your Wilsons. <laughs> you have to put them in the spaceship and then make them pilot the spaceship. Oh, but that wouldn't work. <laughs> I could certainly so, try. Oh, boy. Well, no, no. What I mean is the emotional connection you have with them. If they no, crash. No, I know what you mean. Oh, okay. Man. Oh, jeez, yeah. If they crash and die. Because they do die, I think. Like, they yeah. disappear. Well, we would go out as a group. I mean, no, no Kerbal left behind, as it were. I'm sure I would go full Kerbal at that point anyway. Like Suicide. Stop painting yourself green. Yeah. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You'll find some paint in some random back alley in Japan for sure. So you can just start painting yourself green pretending you're a Kerbal. <laughs> God. Well, I think that game's pretty self-explanatory then for exactly why you would take it. I'm intrigued because you have... Sorry, I'm kind of losing my voice. I'm intrigued that you have chosen two of your valuable spots. I consider the eight because it is a very specific number. It's eight. It's kind of a balance of the first four and the second four. That's like the two sides of your brain deciding on the choice. Um, two of the spots are games that you haven't t- really touched. I think I find that really fascinating. Um, and I would be very intrigued to see how you got on with them and whether you would regret your choices after a certain amount of time. I don't disagree. Yeah. Um, I, I guess when I was thinking about the list, there are so many games that we, that you, you know, that are a fixed narrative. Yes. Sort of limited possibilities. Um, so I, we were talking yesterday and I was like, well, I may debate between three games on air. Um, and that was choosing between, I believe, uh, symphony of the nights, chrono trigger and, something else i can't can't remember right now but but then i realized i was like wait a minute i've i've played all these games if i was to play them you know over and over again would i would that be as valuable to me because i have games like that on this list right i mean i've got legend of zelda phantom pain and final fantasy tactics like in a sense those games are mostly you know fixed in terms of what you can do so i didn't want to limit myself to too many things like that just because i have a really strong affinity for them um, so I tried to think about things that would be more open-ended in terms of how much I can get out of them. Um, yeah. And, and, you know, why not have it be games that I have? Exactly. And if these are the ones that you think you could really dedicate some time to and get better at, yeah. and get that sort of creative output or almost sort of, in your case, academic output, um, <laughs> I think that would be really helpful to staving off that sort of insanity that sets in after a while. I do say that a lot, but I do think that. (laughs) But talking of games that mm, don't have a fixed narrative, but maybe this one specifically is very limited in almost what you can do with it technically. Um, It's not Kerbal. It's not like you can do an unlimited amount of things. It's not Minecraft either. But it does have a tool set, a tool set of things you can do and you can make. Um, But it's very limited. So why don't we listen to some music from this next game and let's just dive straight into it. Mm-hmm. 
speaking of creativity then and fixing your brain on something creative and spending your time not just playing endless hours of Rocket League and Street Fighter, but doing something creative, like making music or painting something um, with some very rudimentary tools, <laughs> I may may admit. Um, it, this next game was developed by a Nintendo R.E.D. and, of course, one of fast becoming final games, top developers, Intelligent Systems. It was produced by the one and only Gunpei Yokoi. It released for the Super Nintendo back in 1992, and it's called Mario Paint. It certainly is. It's a really pleasant game. I have to admit, though, knowing now where I am stranded, maybe a wasted choice. Because <laughs> when I imagine all of the amazing synthesizers that are just waiting for me in Osaka, oh boy, <laughs> Mario Paint would kind of pale in comparison uh, <laughs> as far as a music creation tool. But forgetting forgetting that for a minute, um, yeah, you said it perfectly, right? This is a game that gives you a creative outlet. The painting aspect of it is maybe less exciting, um, although I, I should admit that you know limitations are often the thing that make uh, an artist sort of dig deep and figure out what's what's really important to, for the thing they want to create and how to express yeah. something and can lead to something that's just more immediate and honest. Um, limitations are uh, I forget what the the saying is. Oh, but sure. Limitations is sort of the freedom of creativity. Um, right. Strangely yeah. enough, um, but but the the music creation aspect of that game. Uh, is pretty wonderful. Um, I had a great friend growing up, Andrew Steyer, who is a uh, musician, and he would spend hours in front of this game and just amaze me uh, with the things he can compose. Um, and when I was thinking about this list yesterday, I was talking about Mario Paint, and I was you know, going on YouTube, and, and people are, not surprisingly, actually, uh, still creating music um, <laughs> in Mario Paint. And I'm amazed at the stuff they can accomplish. Like I was listening to Daft Punk and Mario Paint, and I know it's all notes on a um, on a sheet of music, but uh, there's a lot of really interesting expression you can do with. They're almost emojis in audio form. Um, these like <laughs> these little odd sound bites that uh, you know, are the instruments of the the Mario Paint music tool. So yeah, it's it's a weird little creative suite that's uh, great and a bit nostalgic too so that was going to lead me into my next point is this uh, a game you played a lot when you were younger did you make a lot of music back then no I I had no talent for that Um, (laughs) (laughs) none whatsoever Um, I I can't say that I necessarily have like real talent now but I think I may be able to understand uh, or have a better grasp of how music works these days and I, and I look at something like Mario Paint, and it's like, man, if if I knew what I knew now back then, I, this probably would have been one of my favorite games. <laughs> well, it's funny because um, we have had people in the past who have maybe specifically chosen a game for its soundtrack so they can listen to music while stranded in the deserted place, which is, you know, a good idea. Um, having sort of maybe a jukebox of some game that has a lot of variety in terms of like chiptune music or something like that, but you are taking something where you can create your own soundtrack to your deserted island. Yes. So when you are building those spaceships and you are sending those kerbals (laughs) to their deaths, you can create your own soundtrack. You could create like... uh, some of the the flight of the bumblebee in Mario Paint and <laughs> watch watch all these kerbals die in your crudely built spaceships. <laughs> Precisely. Yeah, you 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 figured me out. 
<laughs> and it's funny we were talking about this actually going back to what we started with in terms of you purging your your retro collection actually one of the only games i have bought in japan that is complete in box and factory sealed is a copy of mario paint for the super famicom um and it, it it's in a really horrible gray and purple box and doesn't look very nice um but it's one of the only complete in-game box uh complete in-box games i own <laughs> strangely enough <laughs> yeah it's, it's a it's a cool little thing and, and even when it came out you know it, it supported uh this it came with the mouse the, yeah. the super nintendo and a, a you know, rigid like hard plastic mouse pad uh but it, it was it was a new way to interact with a console for me because i didn't grow up with something like the amiga necessarily or the commodore where maybe you had a mouse so, you know, and a keyboard to work with um so for me like you know i grew up with pcs but yeah for a console to have a mouse that was pretty rad I enjoyed that quite it a is, bit. Yeah, it's a good... And what was it, 1992? That's a ridiculous long time ago as well. And for a, a games console to be using a mouse in, in the way you used a mouse on a computer, you know, dragging and clicking and stuff like that, was kind of weirdly new. Um, but unfortunately, Nintendo didn't really utilize the use of the mouse after that very much, only with games like Wario and Mario and, and, and a lot of Japanese-only titles. So kind of one of those weird Nintendo peripherals that fits in with a lot of other Nintendo peripherals that never got used after one game. I know. I'm looking at the list right now, and yeah, it's... Uh, I mean, there's some good games on here, but they're mostly Japanese and mostly games that I don't think many people would want to play. <laughs> Especially in probably <laughs> the, the mouse element is probably... Oh, so not, minimal. Yeah. yeah, it's super, super minimal. Maybe like you can just scroll through the menus or something or just click on something like that i imagine it being incredibly simple um but yeah mario paint i this is weird because <laughs> one of the things that always tempts me is when guests go to an island with something creative um and we had someone choose minecraft recently and the idea of if you had you know 60 years what could you build what would be your massive project you could build in 60 years? And uh, almost the idea of wanting to bring everyone back at some point to see what they've made. So to see the music you have created in Mario Paint and to see the spaceships you have built in Kerbal Space Program, I'm almost tempted after maybe 10 years, Peter, to bring you back. I would I would burn everything behind. I would leave no no evidence because I'm sure I would get up to things I didn't want anyone to do. <laughs> <laughs> but what if it was one of the conditions for you returning? Yeah, if I had to create something. Well, uh, yeah. The only reason I'd be bringing you back is to hear your bitching ass tunes on Mario Paint. <laughs> I, su I suppose that, I, I suppose that would be valuable. I uh, it's like I. I mean, I went to art school. I know what it's like to make things, but I absolutely hate sharing anything that I make. Um, You're which, a reviewer at a website. I know, I know. <laughs> this goes back to what I was saying earlier. It's hard to write uh, for me because it's it's not that I have a hard time forming an opinion, but I have a hard time making sure that I can f put that opinion uh, down in a way that I, I want people to see it so that they understand where I'm coming from. I think that can, that can be very difficult um, for me anyway. What do you what do you reckon? Do you reckon the tunes would sound very somber because of your situation, or would you be trying to make like happy peppy music to keep you going? That's a good question. It'd probably, I'm sure that I would try to recreate some tracks from Final Fantasy Tactics, 
some maybe some rousing chippy battle themes. Um, maybe funk. I think I'd probably try to get some funk in there because that's fun. You can make some cool bass lines. You can make yeah. some cool bass lines with Mario Paint for sure. Yeah. See another good choice and another sort of uh, almost bending the rules to kind of convince my terrible dungeon master role here of bringing you back so i can see all of these wonderful creative things by all you wonderful creative people um kind of breaking my own rules yeah but speaking of video games with excellent soundtracks and i know the soundtrack to this next game has been sort of contentious and i don't know why because i think it is amazing in areas um i don't know how you feel about the soundtrack to this next game peter but I think it's quite wonderful. So why don't we listen to some music from this next game? And let's dive straight into it. So we have now come to the second to last game on Peter's list. And I think the next two uh, games on your list, Peter, are going to require quite a bit of talking, <laughs> especially <laughs> this one. And now this is a game that is the most recent one on your list. Um, well, technically, Puyo Puyo Tetris is about to come out, but it's already been out for two years. Um, but this next game came out in March last year alongside a brand new console, the Nintendo Switch. It's the latest game in the, I would say, very popular Legend of Zelda series, <laughs> developed by Nintendo EPD and directed by Hidemaru Fubayashi and produced by Eiji Aonuma. It is, of course, the wonderful game that Mr. Peter Brown reviewed for GameSpot, The Legend of Zelda Breath of the Wild. Peter, why is Breath of the Wild going with you? Can we talk about the soundtrack first, since you brought it up? Yes, of course. Is that course. fair? Okay. Yes. So I think there is some controversy because some people say, what soundtrack? Um, yes. Yes. Because this game uses music very sparingly. Uh, but, but very it, importantly. Yes. In my mind, I think it, it does so um, when it matters. 
I think, you know, we're so used to games kind of just having music, right? Having tracks just playing just to kind of fill the void as it were. Yeah. Um, but, and, and this will bleed into, I think, why I appreciate this game so much in general and why I would take it with me is um, the idea of sort of immersing yourself in a world that is wondrous uh, on its own. It doesn't need something like music to make it truly special. Uh, but, but what the soundtrack does in Breath of the Wild to sort of um, emphasize the feeling of wonder that you get is it's somehow, I guess it's not that difficult, but it, it, it knows when you are coming upon something worthy of admiration and provides just the faintest amount of uh, like seasoning <laughs> to your <laughs> to to what you're experiencing with just a little you know piano flit here or there a few keys a few notes um just to sort of emphasize like this is a special moment um, this is something that will make you feel joy feel light you know um feel refreshed in a way and uh yeah th- this and when does it that. does and when and and Sorry, just to interject, no, but yeah, yeah. when it does, is it doesn't just play music. It plays really fucking good music, like incredible, beautiful piano tunes that are just outstanding. And depending on which areas you go to, like all, all have their own unique vibes or takes on different areas from Zelda's past as well. Yes, like when you go to like Rito Village and stuff like that, you have like a kind of Wind Waker theme from, um, what is it, uh, Rooster, Rooster, Dragon Roost, Dragon Roost. Like it, you can sort of feel that, and it takes elements from all the other Zelda games, which I think is incredible and yeah, yeah. beautiful. Yeah, and you know, piano is uh, an instrument that's that's very special to me. Like, in fact, one of the things when I'm writing is I listen to piano arrangements of soundtracks that I really like. I think it's it's just a very elegant instrument, and the way that it's utilized in this game is very elegant as well. Uh, you know, it, it recalls things you just mentioned, but it does so in a way that is very subtle. Um, yeah, where you're not like, oh, okay, Nintendo, I get it. You're like, Man, why, is it, why does this song <laughs> feel so familiar? Why do I feel so comforted by it? Yeah, it isn't just like out in your face going do 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 do. It's not like that. It's like. It's, it's just layered in certain ways where they, they, it has the nostalgic, like it maybe one part of the composition will be a nostalgic theme or the one instrument will be playing like an, a very nostalgic Zelda note. And then the rest of it is very different or very subtle. And it doesn't, you're not immediately able to place exactly where it's come from. Yeah. The, um, yeah you talk about uh, layers uh, have you done the Terrytown? Yes. So I was actually going to say uh, to everyone who is sort of um, ha- has thoughts on the soundtrack or is maybe not convinced, um, Mark Brown, who makes Game Maker's Toolkit on YouTube, he did an incredible video about the, the music of Zelda. And one specific part of it what he was able to explain was about what Peter is talking about now, which is the... Uh, the, the sort of, I forget the name, the village that you build up in a side quest. Yeah, so you essentially need to bring in uh, people from the various tribes to sort of create a new town, multicultural town. And as you complete these quests and you bring in a different tribe, they, they introduce a new instrument and maybe even a new feeling 
to the theme song for the the town. It's called Terrytown, and it by the end of it, you have this sort of menagerie of of styles, but they they all blend together really really well, which is obviously a wonderful parallel for the idea of you know something being multicultural. Um, but it's also just a it's a, a really fun song at that as well. Uh, but yeah, Mark, the video you mentioned is fascinating. Yes, Mark's video. Um, yeah, you should definitely, if you have some thoughts on the soundtrack or maybe you're not so convinced, um, this sort of maybe gives you more um, visual and audible <laughs> explanations as to what me and Peter have been, just been talking about. But we are going to now talk about Breath of the Wild as Peter's choice. So Peter, you did review Breath of the Wild and you have finished it and you are I think you're still playing it for some GameSpot shows as well. You have like a new show that you're playing as well where you speed run it or something? Uh, <laughs> not quite. Uh, sort I mean sort of. You're not you're not off base. Uh, myself and Rob Handlery, uh, senior video producer here, we uh, were doing a show called the Triforce TRY. And the idea was that we would sort of try to play the game in, in different ways every week. Hence the try part of the title. The, uh, the unfortunate news is that we've realized that uh, the internet has done a far better job of this than we can week to week. Uh, and so we've actually kind of decided to wrap the show for now. Uh, not make it a weekly thing. We'll just sort of come back to it as ideas come to us or as new content is released. <laughs> okay. And, uh, and the speed running part of it was our last episode for now. Uh, we did yesterday. We tried to replicate the, uh, the current fastest strategies used uh, for the fastest speed run. Uh, it did not go well. <laughs> but we knew that going in, and that's that's kind of the idea, you know. Rob and I. What is the fun? Yeah, we have a we have a decent rapport, and uh, this game is just a lot of fun to play. So we just have fun doing it together. Um, but yeah, I continue to play the game. Um, it's massive. It's huge, uh, both in scale you know, and in sort of the the depth of you know things to do. I think like you know the speed run for a hundred percent completion is forty nine hours. Which says quite a bit when you consider the lengths people go to to cut their di- their time down. Yeah, um, and so much of this game isn't even just necessarily the the objectives you're completing. It's just just being um, in Hyrule. I have I have literally never played a game that uh, captures the feeling of being isolated in nature um, as well as this game does. Uh, yeah, it's. Um, it still kind of leaves me breathless at times. Uh, it doesn't matter how many how many times I've seen the same area. You know, it, the game choreographs itself so well that uh, you know when you cross that little mountaintop and you see the sun kind of kissing the grass, and there's just a you know a huge grassy valley, and there's just a couple horses out there just kind of doing their own thing. Like none of it is of any consequence. It doesn't matter, you know, regarding your adventure. It doesn't. It's not trying to give you something fun or be like, this is a dense open world with lots to do. It's just a world. Um, and, and one it's, that's... It's a, yeah, it's, it's, it's a world that just exists. Like, you can head to the final boss straight away. Like, you could go from point A to point B and ignore the whole world, and the whole world will just carry on and exist without you. It has no reason for you to interact with it, essentially. Um, which is... Uh, in, f- considering how dense and populated that world is, uh, it, <laughs> I, I get the same feelings of breathlessness when I think about it. Yeah, they, they've done something uh, 
just you know truly remarkable. It's um, I came off of Horizon Zero Dawn um, before playing this game, and probably I, p- feeling pretty great, right? Yeah, like, yeah. I, I gave Horizon a nine, if I remember correctly, and I thought, man, this this game is fantastic. Like, it's you know the combat is one thing, the world is another. The kind of story, you know, it, that that's all good. But it, but it's it seems to be sort of like the best example of something that many studios have been striving for for years, where Breath of the Wild, maybe, if I try to imagine what was going through the developers' minds when they were making this game, it's like, okay, we know what people have been trying to do, but what is that actually trying to answer? What is that actually trying to give them? It's not just about checking boxes. It's about instilling certain feelings and emotions of existing in a world that is not just a video game world. Um, I feel like they were able to answer that need um, in a way that, that no one really knew it could be answered, um, which is you know, through grace, through subtlety, um, through nothing. Like, <laughs> you know, I mean, yeah. like nothing, right? Like you don't, you don't need to be engaged with any one particular activity to appreciate the world that they've created where so many games try to get you on their side by putting things in front of you that they think you're going to love and, and making you interact with them, which is fine. It's just very video game. And I think breath of the wild is, has managed to, to go beyond that. I don't know. Did you watch the GDSC talk, uh, the GDC talk with the, the team who worked on breath of the wild? Um, no, I, I had seen kind of snippets of it, but I, I did talk to, um, the, the three directors uh, the next day actually I had about okay. to, to chat with them yeah because yeah. that is one of the most fascinating talks about how they built the world and how the idea was that everything is like a reaction to what you as the player would decide to do so if you yeah, chop down a tree, a tree gameplay as they describe yeah. it I think yeah. and what I find amazing about Breath of the Wild is that they built that without even thinking about like what is the player's goal it's just that if we give the player the tools to do this, they'll figure out for themselves, like almost a connect the dots kind of thing. Like if I cut down a tree, I can cross a river. That like you can naturally instinctively think that. Like the, the developer doesn't need to tell you to do that. It's just like if we give you the tool to chop down trees, well then there is almost like 50 new things that you as the player can decide to do. So we will just create all these puzzles or all of these obstacles for you to overcome and you use the world we've built, which is I can't really think of another game, especially an open world game, that makes the player think like that. Everything is, as you said, gamey and already like a fixed set of rules and defined variables that this equals this but it won't do this yes precisely and it's it was interesting to talk to them because they um they shared a few stories uh where they had seen people do things that they they didn't even know they didn't even it's not that they didn't know it was possible they didn't even think to put their rules to the test to that degree (laughs) Um, sounds like nintendo (laughs) (laughs) yeah um yeah, it's it's a it's a, I mean, yeah. You take the world part out of it, you just think about the the sort of mechanics of the the physics and all those inter the systems that interplay with one another. That's fascinating on a whole another level. Yeah, um, it's just some of the 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 simple things that bring joy, like 
you know, loading up a boulder with kinetic energy and hopping on it right before it flies away off a mountaintop and just soaring <laughs> across a huge stretch of land strapped to the back of a boulder. Um, and then, honestly, if you were good enough, you could jump off that boulder, pull out a fire arrow, light some grass beneath you, catch the hot air off of that because hot air rises and uh, yep. continue flying on your paraglider and then maybe snowboard down a mountain. I mean, you can, and then, you yeah. can, you can just do all of that just seamlessly if you're good enough. And then just land on a grassy knoll and slide all the way down it. And even then you could jump off it in slow-mo again. Just the amount of things that interlink in that game all very naturally blows my mind. Blows my mind. So going forward then, obviously you're going to take Breath of the Wild and you're going to have a lot of fun with it. And it's going to last you a long time, even though it is sort of one of those games that I think after a while there would be a point where maybe, okay, I've done everything I've 100%ed it, I've felt the world, that kind of thing. Um, but talking about Zelda going forward, as someone who, you know, plays a lot of games, plays a lot of the latest games and sort of where the trends in video games are going, the amount Breath of the Wild has sort of changed the industry now, especially with, like, games like Mario Odyssey coming out. How did Nintendo match what they did with Breath of the Wild, especially when it comes to making the next Zelda game? And also, like... Uh, Mario Odyssey seems to be reinventing Mario a little bit. Do you reckon that's along the same lines as, as how Breath of the Wild has reinvented Zelda? It's tricky. It looks, I mean, it's, it's hard to know much about Mario Odyssey because it's, on the one hand, you see this game set in an urban city, and then it also is set in environments that seem to have that sort of comical fantasy that we've known the series to be. Yeah. Um, I, I don't know that... Yeah, I mean, I think it's going to come down to how those things interconnect, those different locations in Mario Odyssey that really determine if this is a reinvention of Mario. But I think the core mechanics there are maybe more familiar than what we ended up seeing in Breath of the Wild. Yeah. Because uh, combat got a lot more complicated as well. And it's, the, you know, the, the thing that stands out to me as the most traditional aspect of Breath of the Wild, beyond Zelda and Ganon, is this idea of these dungeons. Um, and I honestly think the game would be better without that stuff. Um, it seems to be there just to, just to sort of admit that, like, yes, this is Zelda, and yes, we know what our fans want, so here's something to latch on to. I mean, those dungeons were um, interesting, but I don't think that the things they did had to be siloed, um, you know, into these, like, disparate, uh, you know, things that must be completed. Um, to get a certain power, do this and that, you know, with especially the way it was presented, like every major town you went to had a hero who had once died trying to help you in the past. And the same <laughs> series of flashbacks just seemed to be like, it just felt like deja vu over and over again. So I think if, if Nintendo really wants to continue to, to run with what they've done with Zelda in future Zeldas, uh, they, it would probably behoove them to get away from, from tradition as much as possible. Um, I think they, they, they really have redefined what um, Zelda can be, not necessarily what it should be, right? But if they want to do something, if they want to have a game that will carry the torch that Breath of the Wild lit, uh, they should continue to look into um, you know, immersive worlds with a lot of interconnected systems that give the player freedom to you know, either have fun, um, explore for the sake of exploration, you know, or to accomplish a, a grand goal. Uh, I think that they may have to 
they may have to look to something like sci-fi or which i know sounds just like <laughs> sacrilegious when talking about zelda but i you know how do they keep doing hyrule right like that's that's an important question um I don't. Well, they've 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 made a world that has almost every type of environment in it. It's not like they can (laughs) sort of reel it back now and be like, well, okay, now we're going to make a Zelda all about snow. Well, you had a whole region in Breath of the Wild that's about snow. Um, So it is, as you said, sort of how do they think about Hyrule now? Um, They've been in the sky. They've kind of used water a lot, and that's never gone down very well. So, what can they do? If, you know, it, 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 it may be the case that Breath of the Wild is a one-off for the Zelda series. Um, but, you know, thinking about it, like with sci-fi, okay, well, Metroid would fit perfectly. And, and what this Zelda did not have is uh, much underground exploration. Um, you know, subterranean environments. That, those weren't really a thing. Um, so maybe some Skyrim-like caverns underground. <laughs> well, yeah, but, you know, you think about Super Metroid um, or any Metroid game, really. I mean, they take place in these things that are either underground or they are just massive facilities that may as well, you know, just be totally isolated from the outside world. Um, so I would, I would love to see what a Metroid game could be um, in this sort of scenario. So it, it, it may not be possible for Nintendo to. Um, to replicate the success with another Zelda like this, unless they went in a very different direction thematically. Um, and I don't know if they're willing to do that. Yeah, I don't think they could. Like, even yeah. when you look at Breath of the Wild, Breath of the Wild is insanely different to every Zelda that's come before it, but aesthetically and sort of visually, it's the same. It's not changed that much. It's recognizable and evokes nostalgia and still all of that. So, yeah, I don't think they're going to be able to go and stray too far from that. I mean, there are things they can build upon, but the problem with that is, like, you could make more complex dungeons. Say for the next one, they take you your sort of idea of, like, a Super Metroid style, maybe space base or something, like, and a sort of interconnected lock of rooms and tunnels and more like a traditional older Zelda temple, one that takes you a good hour, two hours to finish. And because they only had four and for the sake of arguing like the breath of the wild actual temples or dungeons you could say sort of not very complex no not complex no. at all no very no. look here's the thing you manipulate the body you do it a few times you know the, the body being the dungeon you manipulate that a few times to just accomplish the same goal in different ways and hey you're done good job yeah so that's like one major area that could do revamping so do you think it would be so bad to keep the same sort of high rule like that is now high high rule like kind it, of like the gta games have kind of gone they've got better technically but they've always sort of had the same layout for like san andreas and stuff like that and i mean it would they would have to to generate some lore that could um modify the world and modify you know what role zelda plays um i don't i I don't think that they could really get away with another, um, you know, politics aside, I think just what people, you know, I mean, they want new stuff. I don't think they could get away with another Zelda is being held by Ganon and need to rescue her game. Yeah. Um, they, they would really have to dive deep into, I think, sort of the more magical, uh, spiritual aspects uh, that, that drive some of the things in the game. 
um, and really identify with that. And if they could, if they could do something thematically around that, I think that could, that could maybe work. I mean, high roll would obviously look very different as a result. I would hope. Um, but yeah, like they'd, they'd have to find some way to just go crazy within the, the rule set of, of Zelda. I, I honestly, I'd almost like to play as an older link. Like, like, a, like, like link I, is the old man now. Yeah. So, like so, something like that. Um, Cause I'm technically, you know, life goes on in breath of the wild. So, you know, what, well, what lies ahead? It depends. Link could be like, he could be putting himself back in resurrection chambers all the time and he yeah. could just live forever. So, <laughs> and Nintendo and Nintendo will <laughs> fucking do that. Nintendo will be like, Oh, how convenient. <laughs> now we've made a plot and law point where we can essentially keep Link alive forever. Oh, Jesus. I, I don't want to think about that. <laughs> I, 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 I trust that they, um, I mean, at least talking to the directors, they, they certainly recognize that they were taking risks with this game. And yeah. they recognize that those risks have been received very well. And it seems to be this sort of, you know, when I think about why I love old games so much, particularly Japanese games, is because they, they did things differently without really apologizing for anything. They um, didn't give a fuck. They were just they like, we're going to do it this way. They didn't give a fuck. And that resulted in a lot of interesting stuff. Sometimes it didn't work, right? But when it did, it was that much more special because you knew it wasn't this calculated move. It was, it was, it, it, you can feel the passion. You can feel the sort of excitement behind the ideas while playing it. Um, and that definitely came through with this game and they seem to be understanding of that. So I would hope that they don't try to be, they don't, they don't try to treat this series as, as too sacred moving forward, given the success they had here. Um, I think it, they'd benefit from continuing to experience. Well, let's hope so. But in the meantime, unfortunately, you are going to have to just make do with Breath of the Wild on your deserted island. But I think that's okay. There's still lots and lots to explore. And um, you're going to have to ingrain in your memory or where where all of those goddamn seeds are. <laughs> I will. I shall be planting my own seeds around Kurumacho. And I apologize because that is disgusting. But <laughs> Well, considering we now know what those seeds are and yes. what the prize is. Uh, that a very is... peculiar smell. <laughs> <laughs> well, we're going to move into your last game now, which is another sort of reinvention of a very well-established series and in an open-world way, very similar to Zelda 2.
So we are now at the eighth game on Peter's list, and we have finally arrived at the final game he's going to be taking with him. And as I said, it is an open-world game that sort of reinvented a very well-established franchise. It released back in 2015 worldwide. It released on the PC, the PlayStation 3, the PlayStation 4, the Xbox 360, and of course the Xbox One. It was, of course, Hideo Kojima's final game while working at Konami. It went through a little bit of a troubled ending, and some people have some sort of controversy with the ending of this game because of some funky things that may have happened during development. But it turned out great and was also reviewed by our wonderful guest today. Peter, you reviewed it. It is this wonderful, wonderful open-world stealth game, Metal Gear Solid V, The Phantom Pain. Yes, and it uh, it's also a wonderful open-world, just balls-to-the-wall action game. <laughs> it can be that's both That's true. Things. It can be absolutely both things. Uh, how I'm imagining that's how you played it then. No, no. I mean, I it depended on you know the way the wind was blowing one day. How I felt <laughs> about approaching the game. Did you check the wind in your helicopter before you landed? Yes, precisely. Um, <laughs> by using my my fancy e cigar. What was the the thing you were smoking? The e cigar that Snake smoked had some sort of drug in it. It had this weird name that would make time travel like time oh, faster. Fucking, yeah, it would like I disassociate forget. him from like the effects of time or something. Yeah, oh. like his dissonance. Yeah, um, I don't remember, oh. but yeah, you know. There's so many things to talk about in this game. It's kind of strange. Um, <laughs> Dude, I'm gonna I'm gonna put it out there. I have never finished this game. I know what happens in the end because I watched a friend play it, but personally, I've never finished it. I never finished my playthrough. It just got too much for me in the end. Too many timed tank missions that put me off playing personally. Okay, that's totally fair. I mean, I think you can you can point to a lot of things in this game that maybe uh, you know perfect or even not good in some respects i think yeah i i maybe it's i try not to pretend that i don't have you know certain biases like <laughs> but like you know i like final fantasy tactics because it's broken i mean it's a broken game but i still like it i mean that's a bias right and i like metal gear as a series quite a bit but i don't love every metal gear and um i don't love everything about even the ones that i do like but i will say Phantom Pain, um, I I really like the story, and dare I say I, I really like Quiet as a character as well. Which um, does, does, uh, yes, yeah, Quiet's a weird one because I like Quiet's backstory and I like what's kind of happened to her, um, but why does it's so hard to like? her because of the way she looks and the way she's presented and just how stupid it is um that it just that gets all thrown away are you able to sort of look past that i think when i see that sort of stuff i i can identify where it's coming from japan (laughs) yes you know you know but you know what i mean like i can understand what it's trying to accomplish and it's not that important to me so i don't worry about it I mean, if I was going to make a checklist of all the things good and bad about her, you know, I'm sure the score would average out, uh, you know, in terms of how I feel about Quiet. It would average out in a way that's very different from what I, I took away from her after finishing the game. But the, the thing is, and, and this is going to go into spoiler territory, so I, I apologize. That's okay. 
That's okay. Um, you know, I mean, she's this character that you, you know, you, she starts off as a prisoner after she's someone who's trying to kill you. Eventually she becomes your aide. And like, it, it's wonderful to have her uh, as a sidekick because she is a, a really good person to go into battle with. I mean, she, you can instruct her to shoot enemies and she can take them out for you. She is this very reliable, very reliable partner. Um, and, you know, she's somewhat misunderstood by the people around her, mistreated by the people around her. And the same can be said for um, the iteration of Snake in this game. Um, he's going through a lot of turmoil and doesn't really know who he is, what he represents, you know, all these different things. But so, so you go on this journey together, and, and it, it sort of climaxes in this battle, um, which is just, it feels impossible in the moment. It, it, it's so strenuous. It's so difficult. At least it was for me. And the scene that follows is one where she essentially <laughs> she has to do something that endangers uh, a, a lot of people uh, to save your life, which is okay, fine. But but the thing that really struck me is that she then leaves you. Um, you know, if I if I can bring some of my own experiences into a game, like I, I think that that can make the things it tries to do very important, and. I've I've been in love and I've have I've had someone you know leave me when I didn't want them to, and that's yeah. the thing that's the thing that sucks. But it's a very real thing. It's a thing that makes you know the good things in life good. I mean, it's it, it's a reminder that uh, <laughs> to not take anything for granted, right? Um, now, yeah, it's like you beat the game at that point, so maybe it's not a big deal that she's gone. But it was a big deal to me because I, I really did feel not a connection with quiet who is splashing around with her butt cheeks flapping in the wind uh, you know p- playing with snake but but she was she was someone that i identified with as a you know a partner in battle like a teammate a uh, teammate, sort of yeah, a, part a of the squad a troubled a troubled individual as well i mean it, you know snake goes goes through a lot of shit in this game and he, and he comes out the other end far different than he started you know both literally and <laughs> you know spiritually but or philosophically, uh, philosophically, but um, I, I really did think that that, that quiet uh, is one reason why that game uh, meant a lot to me. You know, having finished it, so many people that I talked to when we were doing our game of the year debates, they said, "Oh yeah, well, you know, I actually haven't played Chapter Two yet." And I'm like, "Well, then why are we t- why are we having this conversation?" Because I, there's nothing I can tell you without spoiling everything that will convince you that this game is actually worth not just worth finishing, but worth, you know, recognition. Um, yeah. So, okay. So, and, and this is just me sort of talking about things that people don't like about the game, right? So, which is, so, a, which is a sort of thing that's come up about the Phantom Pain. I don't think it gets talked about very much anymore. Kojima's moved on. Obviously, we're all looking forward to Death Stranding and that kind of thing. Um, but there was a lot, considering how well the game reviewed, which it did, you know, it's up there with Breath of the Wild as incredibly high scores but there was a lot after like when people got to the ending because it was a long game so it took a while for people to see the ending and that kind of stuff and the stuff with quiet there was a lot of stuff that came out afterwards that really sort of brought the game back down to earth almost um and that kind of is the stuff that's the remnants of uh i think the focus of people's idea of the phantom pain maybe not so much the positive note for kojima to go out on Yes, it's a uh, it's super complicated thing. 
Um, I, I actually uh, broke the initial story about, um, you know, the fact that he was put on contracts, you know, the fact that he'd be leaving in December, like all this stuff. I mean, it was, it, it was such a tumultuous time <laughs> for, for him, for that game, for the identity of the game, what it represented. And then when it came out, obviously the things that were in it, such as the, you know, gratuitous sort of uh, sexy stuff, the, the story that felt that looked like it, you know, it hadn't been completed. Like, yeah, like it, it went through a lot of shit. Um, but that, you know, to just talk about the game in general, and I think why I would take it with me, uh, it's got a massive open world that's not as interesting as Breath of the Wild, but it's big and it's full of opportunities. Uh, and these opportunities are, you know, they give you a chance to be creative um, because you have a lot of different items and weapons and abilities at your disposal. So sometimes you have to make objectives for yourself if you really want to get the most out of it. But you can play for about 100 hours uh, to really try to accomplish everything, to find everything. And within that time, you can do a, you can handle things very differently. Uh, you know, playing that game purely as a stealth game is very, very difficult. Um, playing it just as an action game can be very difficult as well. It's not just about having enough firepower to take out the people in front of you. It's having a contingency plan when and if they call in uh, backup and how you deal with that. Um so mechanically, the, the most diverse Metal Gear game there's ever been, and I, in my mind, the most diverse open world action game that's out there. Uh, so the, just in terms of just pure gameplay, um, a, a game that I think I could probably play forever as long as I felt comfortable yeah. uh, imposing different rules on myself. So tell me about some of the crazy things that you did, considering all the sort of um talking about you know going back to zelda a little bit talking about the systems in place uh you know metal gear had some very unique systems you could sort of experiment a lot what was kind of the some of the fun stuff that you like to do in that open world uh, that's a good question it's been how long now it's been about two years Game <laughs> I, on for two years two years in yeah September. yeah i haven't played i haven't played since i reviewed it i don't think i mean apart, i've actually tried to introduce people to the game so i've like played the first mission over a few times um, and I, I, I'm sorry. I don't know that I have like a really That's good okay. example of what <laughs> well, I'm you're trying to find describe. Out. <laughs> <laughs> you're going to find out when you get to the end. One thing I am interested though is what is the process of sort of writing a review for a game so big? Like, let's go for you know what you we've spoken about Zelda. You gave that a ten out of ten. You gave Metal Gear a ten out of ten as well, correct? So. What is the process of being like, okay, this is a really big fucking game and I'm really enjoying it. And I think it's a 10 out of 10. Is it a 10 yeah. out of 10? <laughs> well, with Zelda, we had the game a couple weeks ahead of time. And yeah. I, I knew almost instantly that like, you know what? I, holy shit. This is something just remarkably special. Um, and we, we sort of as a team, as more people got their hands on it, like we, we kind of figured that out. So in that sense, I had plenty of time um, to sort of formulate my review. Metal Gear was as a sprint. Um, I wrote the review in a little over an hour. Um, Whoa! Yeah, I had a team of people ready to help me, you know, QA it after I was done. And I sounds like it was stressful. I can hear the size, the memories coming back. It was a little bit stressful um, because you know taking in the ending of that game uh <laughs> it kind of it kind of <laughs> reframes everything that you've done um 
You are not who you thought you once was. You are very much not. And I had to sort of like come off that, like splash my face with cold water and say, okay, uh, put your analytical hat on and and tell people why you think this game is so special. Um, It's, it's, I mean, we treat every review with the same amount of uh, import. Uh, a, a 10, certainly, you know, we, we, uh, we're a little bit more careful with how we do things. Yes. Um, because I know one thing that I have noticed on GameSpot over the years is you do sort of look back when you do give a game out 10 out of 10 and you list the other games, the very kind of short list of games that over the years have received a 10 out of 10 on GameSpot. And you're like, yeah, well, I mean, look, we're going to explain... Like, this game is in this category. Like, look at these other fucking outstanding games. This is why this game got a 10 out of 10 comparative to these other 10 out of 10s. Yeah, you know, I think we've got a... We've been around for 21 years now, give or take months, probably. And I think we've given 12 10s in that time. Uh, two of which were from me. It's, uh, it's you know, we don't, we don't take it lightly. We, you know, we certainly... <laughs> it's it's weird because we're not saying this is a perfect game by any measure. What we're saying is that this is an essential game, one that we think um, that should be played by everybody. So in that sense, I have to essentially prove that. I have to prove why I think that this game should not be overlooked. That doesn't mean that I don't criticize. It's still open to criticism. Yes. Which is something that is, I think, lost on our readers a little bit. It, it's It's hard to communicate, you know, Look, games don't start at 10. We subtract from there. Even if we only have good things to say about a game, it may still be a 7. Because it has to earn every point that we give. Yeah. So, uh, for a 10, yeah, I mean, we're just, you know, you've, you've really got to... If you don't have an argument compelling enough that people around you will tell you, I'm sorry, this reads like a 9. I don't think we should publish this as a 10. And you have to say, okay. Um you know, it's 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 rare that I ever go in with a score in mind. Um, I believe. Did you have the, a score? Because you only had an hour. Did you have a score? Or was it like you wrote it and you were like, "This is I, it." This is. I knew it was at least a nine in my head. Like I knew the things I was going to say were going to get to that point. Like, yeah. Um, enough people told me, you know, this kind of reads like a ten, and it was like, okay, then. Like I'm I'm totally fine with that. Um, because I feel I felt the game was essential, and you know, we always we have to be subjective that that's what we do there really is no objectivity in, in the things in the reviews that GameSpot publishes uh you know maybe something is broken or working yeah sure you can call a thing broken and it's objectively broken but when it comes to really providing a final evaluation on something like that's that's totally subjective so yeah when people told me that that's what it read like and i that that's just it i mean okay because i said what i wanted to say yeah so if that's what it is then that's what it is <laughs> Zelda was a little bit different because it was just like this is up and down like obviously something just excellent just incredible Phantom Pain was, was one that was a little bit more conflicted. do you feel like there are more does, like putting in balance than what you've said about Zelda compared to the Phantom Pain like Zelda has its issues um but it feels like that's more of a ten out of ten than a than a metal, than the Phantom Pain was. Do you get that sometimes? Like this is maybe a ten point five out of ten kind of that weird feeling. Yeah. Well, I mean, things evolve, right? I mean, yeah. the sort of the the way that we look at things changes. 
Uh, sort of what I was talking about with Horizon Zero Dawn before. There is this post-Breath of the Wild effect that yes. I think games are struggling with right now, or publishers are struggling with. Anything that's open world will kind of be propped up against this in a, in a sense. Um, you know, Reviews are never really comparative in that way, but when people get used to something, it's hard to go back to a, a lesser example. It is weird because I bet you in your own head in some way have relief that you played Horizon first and reviewed that and got that out of the way without having to fight the conflicting thoughts like Horizon is a 9 but it's not open world even close to Breath of the Wild so does that does that bring it down is it because this is now the new standard and it's so far not so far away but it's not close to the new standard that it brings it down again i mean i suppose you know if the discussion we're having is that breath of the wild is revolutionary then the answer must be yes okay so breath of like one something because like when the witcher 3 came out and then it's like okay this is kind of like the standard for like open world rpgs now like when we look at skyrim and stuff like that that kind of stuff looks kind of dated and if something doesn't sort of match up to that, the points will be lower. Whereas when Skyrim came out, you know, it was a 10 out of 10. Oh, I mean, that kind of... one of the 10s that we gave on GameSpot way back when was Chrono Cross. So I think that kind of proves, <laughs> that kind of proves the point. <laughs> if you look at that game nowadays. <laughs> uh, although that, that one is kind of tossed around as a bit of a, a bit of a, some people, <laughs> some people love it. Some people I, love it. I love that game too. Uh, for many reasons. Uh, <laughs> just not but, ten. Just not ten out of ten reasons. Not even back then. No. <laughs> <laughs> well, you are going to take Phantom Pain with you, Peter, and that does mean now that we have to send you off to a fictional Osaka, um, which is quite a shame because I could talk to you about sort of the ideas behind reviewing and the ideas of like approaching a game in a certain way for hours. But I really want to thank you so much for coming on the show today. Liam, thank you. This has been this has been fun. I'm glad. I'm really glad you enjoyed it, and I hope you enjoy sort of experimenting and making music and doing all these weird things with all these systems that you have in place to experiment with uh, during your time playing these eight games. Yeah, and if, with any luck, I will launch with my phalanx of kerbals behind me uh, into the <laughs> into the sky. Into the sky. Uh, and, um, <laughs> I don't know. I'll probably crash land in the ocean or something. Somehow you can make it out (laughs) of Japan and fly back to North America somehow. Um, But Peter, I'm sorry. There is one more thing I have to ask you. And it's another thing that comes out of left field um, that maybe you didn't know about, which is um, I asked you, you know, about what island you're going to. And I've uh, sort of asked you a lot about games. And we've talked uh, a lot about the games that you've chosen. But a big part of video gaming is the consoles we play and the way we play. The way we play is very important. And Nintendo even had a slogan about it before the Switch called The Way We Play. Um, so it is very important. And my final question before you leave is that if you could take any console with you, bearing in mind the back catalog, the controller, the maybe even the OS, and you know the operating systems and how they run, if you could take any console with you, what console would you take? Uh, the original PlayStation. The original PlayStation, I did not expect that. I will admit, hmm. I thought I thought for a second maybe the Super Nintendo. Yeah. Then I thought some people think, 
maybe that's too out of date, so they go like Xbox 360 or something like that. Um, so give me a couple of reasons as to why you'd be taking the PlayStation. Uh, well, most of my favorite games uh, live on that system. Um, I think it, it's it's a in some ways it's a a very calamitous bridge between the era of 2D and 3D, but um, on both sides of that bridge, there are great games that live on that console. Um, you know, I can I can get all the RPGs I want. There's there's an, almost an endless supply of great RPGs. Uh, so many arcade ports of great games that maybe they're better on Saturn, but uh, you know, to have them on a system with so many other games available to it, that'd be fine. Um, I, I just I think the library is just super diverse. It, it suits my, my tastes and my needs pretty well. Excellent. Well, alongside the eight games you've chosen today, you can take a PlayStation and you can get all those RPGs too. So, Peter, thank you so much for coming on the show today. It's been an absolute pleasure listening to you talk about these video games. Um, so, for all the people who have listened so far and made it to the end, where can they find you on the internet and what other sort of your work should they be checking out? Uh, so yeah, I'm a senior editor at GameSpot, so you can find me there uh, reviewing games or co-hosting The Lobby, which is our weekly show on uh, Wednesdays at 11 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Uh, otherwise, I'm on Twitter at PC Brown. Uh, I like to tweet about retro games and, and that sort of thing. Um, and what am I working on? Uh, well, right now I'm working on a review of the Retro Freak console, which you might be familiar with. Liam. I am. The amount of times I've gone to look at it and buy it and not bought it yet because it's really expensive, but one day I will take the plunge, maybe after I've read your review. It's pretty cool. It's So it's coming out in the UK and in uh, North America very soon. Um, so I, someone from the UK reached out to me to do a review, and I've been playing with that. Uh, you know, I... I love sort of like reference grade authentic video game hardware. This is not that. This is an emulation box, uh, but it's one that supports you know every cartridge system that I care about because uh, I don't really care about sixty four that much. Um, <laughs> and is it region it, free? It's not region free, is it? Oh, it is. It is completely. So you can play yeah. Japanese copies and European yeah. copies. Oh, I did not know that. See, that's one of the things that's been holding me back because I can. I can, I can get by reading Japanese on boxes of things, but I couldn't. I just couldn't get the information I wanted out of the Japanese on the Retro Freak box. Um, but is it of a better quality than, say, maybe like the Superboy and stuff like that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so it's got a lot of special features. So one of the things you can do is, uh, you know, there are fan translations out there for games, right? Um, yes. So you can. You don't even have to download a ROM. You can avoid doing anything illegal. You can put a cartridge of Tactics Ogre, like I did in this system, and you dump that game to the Retro Freak. And you download the translation patch and put that on an SD card, and you can patch the ROM that you ripped from your own cartridge. So you can play untranslated, you know, unofficially translated games. Oh, shit. So I can play my Japanese copy of Mother 3. Yes. Oh, shit. Now... If you wanted to, you could also just download the ROMs, disconnect the, the core of the Retro Freak from the cartridge adapter, which is actually the console body itself, connect a wireless uh, 8-bit Do, which is a company that makes great controllers, uh, you know, retro style. You can, you can just have a little emulator box that's about as big as your wallet connected to your TV and have a wireless Super Nintendo pad and play all your favorite games that way, if you want. I mean, it's, it's a really 
It's a really flexible system, whether you own games and want to play them and get the most out of them, or if you just want to play retro games because uh, you're a filthy pirate and you download everything. Um, I don't condone <laughs> See, it, I but if like, that's you... <laughs> yeah, if that's you, I feel like it'd be a very slippy slope for me because I would end up then abusing my power of living in Japan and just buying fucking any cheap Super Nintendo game or Game Boy Advance game or, <laughs> or anything and just playing every single one of them and just then ending up with a collection that I need to purge like you. <laughs> I will. How, yeah. much, how much is it going to be in America? Um, that's a good question. I think it's just under $200 um, I was based on say, the conversion rate from the UK. Yeah, it's like $150 here, which is what's put, off, put me off considering you can buy like a Raspberry Pi and be a dirty pirate and uh, have your own little emulation box. Yeah, I um, think the, the Retro Freak is just it's it's a it's a it's a simpler concept. It's it's much more user friendly, I think, and flexible yeah. in that you can use original games also if you want to. You can use original controllers also if you want to. Things start to get a little bit. Well, you either can't do them with a the Raspberry Pi, or it gets really complicated. Uh, like if you wanted to use original controllers, you have to buy. Yeah. Stuff. So yeah, it, it's not cheap. Um, you almost pay not to have to hack it to pieces and a little bit. Yeah. Okay. And it's and it's you know it's a nice little substantial box as well. It's not too big. It's not too small. It's it's very understated in its design, and I can put a cartridge in. It. Like it's that's 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 great. Um, you know, I, I spend a lot of money on video equipment for retro games. Like, I'm picking up a stupid monitor this weekend. I've <laughs> got a frame meister that I buy expensive RGB cables for. But at the same time, this thing, I can just plug in an HDMI cable and I can play 12 different systems. Just with no hassle. So, you know, it, it's it's a great option for someone who maybe wants yeah. to have real games and play them on a modern display without the issues that typically come with that. Yeah. Uh, without having to invest a lot of money shit now i'm gonna have to buy one you've convinced me i'm gonna wait for your review and i think everyone should check it out um especially if you're interested in retro gaming um but yeah oh, now i'm tempted now i'm gonna have to go tomorrow and see <laughs> that's me 150 dollars down thanks peter <laughs> well because of this you are getting punished and we are now going to send you away so peter thank you so much for appearing on final games it's been an absolute pleasure thank you man so if you have listened this far i hope you've enjoyed today's episode and of course you can always find final games on the internet you can find it on soundcloud you can find it on itunes if you search for final games you can also rate and review the show there which would be very very helpful uh, you can also find it on other podcasting applications such as stitcher uh, overcast and all those other wonderful great places you can also find us on twitter at final game show and you can then find me uh at liam bme i tweet about very similar things to peter uh retro games video games i tweet about japan as well and all that sort of stuff so if you enjoyed today's episode please go rate review like and all that kind of things and i hope to see you again next week so for now goodbye <laughs>